Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. Ladies and gentlemen, this is QLS Classic, and we are going way back, back into time. We're going to episode number three with the great Dante Ross, a.k.a. Dante the Scrub, a.k.a. Dante, who introduced you to so many acts. You can name them. He either A&R'd them or signed them himself. De La Soul, Queen Latifah, Digital Underground, Pete Rock CL Smooth, Brand Nubian, name them. House of Pain, name them. Yes, Dante Ross damn near wrote the soundtrack of your life, and he lived it. One of the most incredible humans ever, one of the best lovers of music ever, Dante the Scrub Ross, QLS Classic. Let's go. Two, one, two. Suprema, su, su, Suprema, roll call. 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 My name is Questlove. Yeah. Wookin' Penubs. Yeah. I'm on here chilling. Yeah. With Dante the Scrub. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema, su, su, Suprema roll call. My name is Fonte. Yeah. Fonte Galo. Yeah. Shout out to Shazzy. Yeah. And Jigga Ho. Roll call. Suprema, su, su, Suprema roll call. Suprema, su, su, Suprema roll call. My name is Sugar. Yeah. Sugar Steve. Yeah. I keep my Kit Kats. Yeah. Up my sleeve. Roll call. <laughs> Suprema, su, su, Suprema roll call. Suprema, su, su, Suprema roll call. My name is Bill. Yeah. Got here late. Yeah. Now I'm single. Yeah. Need a dick. Roll call. Suprema, su, su, Suprema roll call. Suprema, su, su, Suprema roll call. I am Boss Bill. Yeah. I'm fresh to death. Yeah. Shout out to that crab. Yeah. From Quest Love Chef. Roll call. Suprema. Su, su, you trying to get me killed? Roll call. 
Suprema, su, su, Suprema Roll Call. My name is yeah. Dante. I got no yeah. problems. Yeah. I say. Roll Call. Suprema, su, su, Suprema Roll Call. Suprema, su, su, Suprema Roll Call. What's up, people? How are you? Uh, welcome to another edition of Questlove Supreme. I was going to say Suprema, but yeah, Questlove Supreme. Uh, I'm your host, Amir Questlove Thompson, and I uh, brought a few friends with me. Uh, my man, Ace Boon Coon, uh, Shorty Doo-Wop. I don't know what other titles to call you yet, bro. I got a lot of them, man. I got a lot of them. All right, so what are you? you you're, my, you're my Al Capone. Oh, uh, yeah. My uh, Eva Perone. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, shit. Um, Rolling Stone. The Rolling Stone, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the Yin to the Yang. I'm the Robin to the Batman. Yeah, uh, Fontigula. Uh, yeah, I'm Jerome to the Morris. You know, I hold the mirror. Ah, bruh. You know what I mean? Well, uh, we both might just be Jellybean and Jesse and not know it. This is true. This I kind of think Boss Bill is, is Morris. I think he could be Prince. He's yeah, a, I'm about to say be Boss Bill is Prince. He's Prince. He's definitely Prince. He's he's the, 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 the he cracks the whip. I'm just no, he's Grover Washington Jr. <laughs> <laughs> the accuracy. Honestly, that's true. That shit was hilarious. All right, so uh, Font, uh, how's how's the project been going? Uh, everything's going good, man. Uh, Tigalero, that's the project with me and my man Eric Robeson. Uh, it's out right now. Uh, we've uh, been doing some dates in support of it and everything. And uh, yeah, man, it's going real well. I'm just thankful that people like it. Uh, and I can pay my bills and feed my chair. Feed your chair. That's about it. That's that's the life. At the end of the day, that's what life is about. That's what it is. I'm thankful, man. I'm thankful, happy. Your chair. How's your cheering doing, uh, Steve? I have no cheering <laughs> yet that I know of. I thought you had some cheering, Steve. I have, no, I have no cheering. Uh, how's, how's life going, bro? Good. All right. Well, I believe you as you took the pregnant pause. No. With no children to say good. Still trying to make the cheddar and so forth, though. Okay. Well, you, you can't say ER when you say cheddar. It just has to be A at the end. <laughs> cheddar. No, I actually meant cheddar. Steve is actually, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe we can use this platform to help you. Steve uh, has a, a lifelong obsession with collecting every CTI record that's ever been in existence. Oh, wow. But most importantly, you're looking for What's the- What's CTI? Uh, CTI is, uh, it's, uh, uh, not to be confused. Which with one of you doesn't know what CTI condition. is? Oh, okay. And everyone listening. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I felt that you were asking facetiously and not <laughs> literally. It's Creed Taylor. Okay. Well, that's the, the famous jazz producer. Famous jazz. It's one of his labels. It's a label that you're obsessed with. I am. Yeah. I think ECM is another one of yours too, right? I ECM you... I'm still working on, but I think I have pretty much every CTI record at this point, except 45s, which is what Amir's talking about. Anyway, yeah, I love CTI. Yes. Anything Creed Taylor. Kudu. A oh, yeah, A and M. Wow. He was at A and M first, and then and before that, Verve. Is there is there a particular album that you're looking for that you haven't found yet? Or yes, it's called Soul Flutes. Soul Flutes. Yeah. Actually, uh, I, I actually have that. Yeah, I've seen know, a few. Yeah, yeah. You I, said you might yeah, have wow. it. I'm actually going to my storage unit in a couple of days. Well, that's one of the 45s that Quest gave me. Was the Soul Flutes? It was uh, it was Scarborough Fair on the A side and Deo on the B side. I think the album's called Trust in Me. Yeah, that was mm. Soul Flutes was the name of the band. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow. Okay. And it's like Herbie Hancock on keys, and I think Ron Carter's playing on it. And 
He just, was on all the CTS. Yeah, he was on everything. It's um, good to be in a room with people that actually read the the liner notes. That's awesome. That's that's the one thing I miss about record culture today. Mainly because no one in our in my life particularly knows that uh, I'm connected to a project with uh, William. I forgot. Oh, oh, I was about to say what, William the what, Driver. No, I, I forgot what unpaid title bill. we have for uh, unpaid bill. Oh, unpaid, unpaid bill. bill. Oh, yeah. unpaid bill. How you doing, bro? Goodbye. How are you? Yeah. Well, I'm just saying that people don't read the credits, so they don't know how the Hamilton soundtrack came to be. So it's I mean, true. But people who listen to theater records do read the credits because they like to read the lyrics. Yeah, because but it's not on it's not on streaming services that's yet. True. Yeah, they got to figure that out. I think yeah. that's the next step in uh, the whole streaming thing. They're getting the lyrics together with the genius. They're kind of working the lyrics out, but right. credits are still, yeah. still they haven't done it yet. That's the main reason why I haven't really gone in on credits yet, because I feel like no one's reading it. And with social media and writing books, I don't feel the need to pepper albums with album credits as much as I used to. So, what's up, though, Bill? How's, how's life on uh, the street? <laughs> <laughs> the streets. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I didn't mean like you were Life homeless. Divorce, the urban streets right? of Westchester, they're beautiful. Well, I meant the street that you work for. Oh, that street. That street's good. The Muppets are human to me, by the way. I know. I, I thought I'd just let the world know that. Where do you work, Bill? I work at Sesame Street. I'm the music director of Sesame Street. Thank you for asking. And uh, uh, Questlove and I met because he because uh, we worked on the Hamilton record, but then he... Uh, then in turn wrote songs for Sesame Street. I asked you one too many questions about the actual Muppets, like but, they were real. But I also learned later that you watch Sesame Street more than my own children and probably more than most people's children, which I was fully <laughs> impressed by. And your your almanac knowledge, encyclopedic knowledge of music is also in sort of the Sesame Street world too, which I envy because often people ask me some deep, dark knowledge shit about Sesame Street and I have no idea what they're talking about. You guys about. had crazy breaks. And, it's true. you know, I just want to rummage through the entire collection. Just I was to... thinking about that the other day. The, the, in the same way you're going to your storage shed to get the 45s for Steve, we should go to the Sesame Street storage shed and just go back to ah, it. I know. That would be It bad. exists. Ah. We, could, we could go and do it. I think, yeah, I'm sure they let you do it. Because I want the end it. thing. I, that was my favorite. Wow, wow, wow. You know what? I'm so da-na, mad. Freaking. Yeah. All right. So in the original, like, Roots demo, that was, like, one of the songs that we rhymed over. Oh, with, wow. And we put a... Uh, we put uh, uh, Bobby Brown's "Hot Pants I'm Coming" break on top of it. Bobby Bird. Bobby, um, Bobby, said Bobby. I said Bobby Brown. Brown. Yeah, I was like, Hold up, that's some other. <laughs> oh, drop it on the two. That was, <laughs> that was his project. Drop it on the two. Um, yeah, it, our first demo uh, was the the end credits to Sesame Street. The break that uh, I guess MF Doom rhymed over, it. Uh, and uh, on the second. JVC Force uh, album, uh, they that was the first single where they rhymed over over that that break with correct. the Bobby Bird "Hot Pants Up Coming." Oh so, wow! Ah, uh, yeah, man, uh, it's, it's a heartbreak. It was a heartbreak, man. <laughs> boss Bill, what's up? How's life when you're not bossing me around? When am I not bossing you around? <laughs> <laughs> How's life, man? <laughs> Life's great, man. I got somebody to boss around now. <laughs> And, and and Boss Bill, I, he's he's very effective. I will say, like, no, that's effective. why he's here. Nah, he he's I'm needed. very undisciplined. I'm very unfocused. You know, I look. I'm Ronald McDonald, and Boss Bill is the Ray Crop. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, 
how do you know Ray Kroc? Everybody <laughs> knows who Ray Kroc yeah, is. Ray Kroc, yeah. He was the, I don't know who Ray Kroc is. Ray Kroc. He was, Ray Kroc. He was the, 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 the inventor of McDonald's. He was the guy. How do you know the history of McDonald's? I've known that since I was a kid. I think I did too. What I read you, it in a book. Oh, and you can just go and jump on that unpaid bill. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, like, there's a plaque if you go to McDonald's that has him on it that says. Ray yeah, actually, I'm I think sure, there I'm is. Pretty sure there is. Yeah, I think there is. I actually knew that. I didn't know what CTI was, but I knew about McDonald's. <laughs> you make so rock, yeah. Bring that shit. Well, I feel horrible that I didn't know that. You know, all the weight that I put on over the years was courtesy of, <laughs> courtesy of Ray Kroc. Yeah, Ray Kroc. <laughs> yeah, he was the one. He was famous for the quote, "I'm not in the people think I'm in the. What do you say? People think I'm in the hamburger business. I'm in the real estate business." That was his. That was his. Did own he philosophy. write a book? He did. I don't, did he, you I don't read know this he, book, Fonte? I read parts of it. Motherfucker! I, <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was. I mean, this was. It was a long time ago. But um. But yeah, he was dropping some real game in there. He was on some pimp shit. He basically was like, "Look, like they talk about how the McDonald's formula, I guess, in the early days was just really the book was like really thin." But now the shit is like thick as hell. And basically his mantra, his his whole thing was like, look, this is the way we do it. And y'all can either do it like this or you can step the fuck off. And I respected that. So um, I forgot the name of the book. I mean, this was just, I, called, just, I was an undergrad. It's called Grinding It Out, The Making of McDonald's. There it is. There it is. This was, I mean, this was years ago. But I feel the- really inadequate right now <laughs> as a foodie, as a human being. I have Google, so. <laughs> your Your knowledge of. Of some deep dark shit is, is, is real. <laughs> is real. Right. Fonte fuck. comes with it. Yeah, Fonte, what? Do you what? know the history you of like look at the quotes. Too. You're quoting the quotes. Oh wow! I'm oh, looking yeah. at them. And you quote them. Oh wow! Yeah, they the quality right of a leader is reflected <laughs> in the standards they set for themselves. I don't know, Fonte. <laughs> nah, that was yeah. That was uh yeah. I remember that book. Yeah, man. Ray Kroc. He was, he was the dude. Your memory. He was the dude. Well, yeah. that's that's incredible. That's why you guys are here to really. Pick up the slack that apparently <laughs> I don't have. Uh, did you know about Ray Kroc, uh, Steve? No. Or you? Just, uh, thank you for being honest and saying that. I know all the. Are you just saying that to make me feel better? You know all the characters. <laughs> I know all the characters. <laughs> me too. I only Hamburglar. Who? Shit. Grimace. Grimace. Yeah, the mayor. The fry guy. Mayor McCheese. Didn't they have a little bird for a second? I mean, McDonald's. Yeah, I think there was the mayor. The shit is going to be just. Out of control. <laughs> Mayor is... I haven't seen Mayor McCheese in a second, bro. Yeah, is he still? I think they didn't they take he, him he, out. He got voted out. Yeah, he Mayor. got impeached. <laughs> is the hamburger? Is he still around? Hamburger's still around. Hamburger's still around. He and in Grimace jail. Still he had a heart attack, but he's he's all right now. <laughs> uh, okay. Oh, Grimace. Okay. <laughs> hamburger had a heart attack. That's like the the mate. What was the guy? The uh, what was the Marlboro man? Wasn't he the one that died of cancer? cancer yeah, yeah. The yeah, Marlboro. Yeah. That's just like when people die of the thing they endorse. So really? That's, yeah, that shit is kind he of. He died of what? Throat cancer? Or? It was some kind of cancer, some kind of smoking ass cancer. They got his ass up out of there, whatever it was. But um, <laughs> that like, <laughs> what they call like it? When you say that, did you envision like a, a Sandman Sims cane pulling him? Right, right, exactly. The horse died too. The horse, the horse, the. Uh... Oh yeah, yeah. The horse did die. The horse did die. I would hope so. After that fifty was a years. Joke, but... <laughs> But I thought Fonte knew the history of what the horse. No, nah, no, nah, it was a. Uh, I was thinking because I'm trying because now I'm thinking of people who died from the products they endorsed. So my, I know supposedly you. Uh, I think Pop the Atkins guy that was the the guy that did the Atkins guy. High Google cholesterol. It, I could be wrong. I Google mean, it. I, I, just, I just checked on the Marlboro man, and apparently four different Marlboro men died of cancer. <laughs> God damn. So you know if you they, get if you get that job, it's a wrap. Yeah, it's, it's, you're cursed. Well, but, is there still a quote unquote Marlboro man? They're dead. I don't know. 
Because okay. I know, like, there was all these all these regulations down, about advertising and smoking. You know, they got rid of Joe Camel and all that. So mm. maybe they got rid of the Marlboro Man too. Who knows? Yeah, they did get rid of Joe Camel. Damn, that's right. Yeah. All right. Well, this is going to be a very weird segue from cigarette <laughs> <laughs> smoking right. to music. <laughs> kind of want to do a, a slight backtrack. At least you know all all history is either revisionist or subjective. So, you know, keep in mind that even though I could speak with a great deal of of authority and clarity. Uh, I could be wrong, but um, the guest we have today, uh, I feel is important because I believe that he kind of ushered in what I like to dub the Renaissance era of hip hop. And a lot of times, especially people born uh, after 1985 that hear a bunch of adults sort of moaning and groaning about uh, classic hip hop and back in the day and all that stuff. And, you know, you don't understand eras. It's it's my personal belief of how the era uh, system runs in hip-hop is kind of a five-year increment in which uh, I see things. I usually see the evolution of hip-hop in the second year of the decade and the seventh year of the decade. Um, and I guess if you... Look in the 70s, I feel like the most important, as far as uh, uh, actual revolution and change in music, uh, even though 1977 isn't my personal favorite year of the 70s, uh, you can't deny uh, the importance of 1977. Um, What is the importance of 1977? To me, probably the most important element of 1977 in music wasn't even music or a person. I believe the velvet rope that separated you from the entry to Studio 54 uh, in itself spawned three different subcultures, not even by design. First of all, I mean, Studio 54, if you've heard the folklore of, you know, like the Sodom and Gomorrah of nightclubs. Yeah, it's it's the, the penultimate debaucherous. I mean, everything from Bianca Jagger coming in uh, on nude on a horse or yeah. anything that could happen. Uh, it's it's proprietors. Uh, who built Studio 54? Steve Lobel. Lobel and uh, Ian Schrager. Ian Schrager, yeah. yeah. That's weird because uh, now when you say Ian Schrager, I think of hotels, but I keep forgetting about Studio 54. Um, but the point is that, uh, well, literally for Studio 54, I mean – Every time that he had time off from shooting The Wiz, Michael Jackson was in Studio 54 studying its infrastructure, studying the DJ, studying the people, which I know played a big role in how he crafted Off the Wall. Off the Wall, right. Uh, Even getting rejected by Studio 54 gave Atlantic Records their biggest selling hit. Chic. Chic's uh, 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 Le Freak. Le Freak, yeah. Which was formerly uh, Fuck Off from Freak Out. Oh, freak out. Oh, fuck off. Uh, now Rogers and Bernard Edwards get rejected uh, after being invited by Grace Jones to come down to the club. And, of course, uh, they just go to the studio after giving up and resigning to getting in. And they started jamming about Studio 54 and called it Fuck Off. And then 
10 minutes into it, they were like, wait, this is a hit. This is jamming. Freak out. And then thus their revenge. Uh, but not to mention uh, Lower East, uh, the village, uh, the punk rock scene, and the downtown art scene. Spawns on the west side, uh, you know, uh, the the uh, a lot of underground uh, gay disco clubs start uh, formulating. I mean, they've been in existence, but Larry LeVan will soon... Paradise Garage. Yeah, develop Paradise Garage uh, in the starting in the early 80s, but he was also a disciple of Studio 54 and kind of took their culture to the underground set that wasn't allowed in it. And, of course, up in the Bronx, you have hip-hop. Now, between 77 and 82, which, you know, I call the, the kind of the, the post-disco period of hip-hop because a lot of what they were rhyming over was just the music at the time, not to mention... The five years before that, 72 to 77, the music from that period, Africa Mimbada's finding these records in the basements and, and, and sort of recontextualizing them as new music. So now a cut like Give It Up or Turn It Loose by James Brown has a whole new meaning. Whole new life, yeah. Yeah, in, in a B-Boy nightclub. Uh, so that's from 77 to 82. Of course, you know, Rapper's Delight and... I guess the, the the two most important songs of that period, I, I would think, at the end of the period, is uh, The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, the beginning of, like, reality rap, uh, and Planet Rock, uh, which Arthur Baker and, and Ben Bada, leading to what I call the golden period, 82 to 87, enter Run DMC, uh, Sort of like a slow, well, well 82 to 87. 80, well, nah, not quite yet. Joe Bonner's show, I don't know that. I, I would probably say that Marley Maul is the the figurehead that really pushed it for production-wise. Um, also, I, I got to shout out Full Force. I mean, they were the first to start using actual great beats inside of their, their records. Um, and for me, the classic period, when people refer to the classic period, it's the next period, 87 to 92. Um, and the reason why I say the classic period, uh, if you're born before 85, I'll say that uh, there's a compilation, a 25-record compilation called Ultimate Beats and Breaks, which uh, Breakbeat, shout out to Breakbeat Lou Flores. He compiles all the breakbeats that Bambata used to spin uh, at his party jams that you previously you previously couldn't find. So uh, if you're older, I'd say this is the uh, the uh, the cliff notes of yeah. This is the cliff notes of of breakbeats. Um, okay, so a breakbeat, of course, is the good part of the record. If there's a record that has a drum break in it that you're able to rhyme over, an instrumental able- drum break, no singing over it, no uh, right, no. Keys, no guitar. So when you, when you hear older producers refer to stuff like "impeach the president," they're not talking about getting rid of your country's leader. They're talking about a certain breakbeat. By the um, honey drippers. Yeah, I mean it's it's often debated what's the greatest one. I it's, for the folklore of James Brown's funky drummer, I will kind of say that I believe that "impeach the president" is the ultimate breakbeat. Uh, which even when you beatbox. 
as an older person, when you beatbox, the beat that you do is always. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing impeach the president even without knowing it. Um, so just saying that where previously they used to take these records and wash the labels off and you didn't have Shazam to know where these breaks were coming from that B-Boys were going crazy to. Uh, Lou Flores now put compilations out and pretty much the hip hop nation ate it up from Public Enemy to N.W.A. Anybody that was making stuff between 88 and 92 was using and abusing (laughs) ultimate beats and breaks, Uh, which leads to uh, the next period, which I call the Renaissance period. Um, Now, on the East Coast, this this. It's especially true on the West Coast, of course. Dr. Dre will kind of take the rein and 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 just just ride till the wheels fall off. Or did they ever fall? Did off? Did they ever fall off? Right. They never yeah. fell off. But uh, for the East Coast, uh, what makes uh, our guest Dante Ross uh, so notable is the fact that he is starting to sign acts who. They find ways to make music that's outside of the ultimate beats and breaks uh, paradigm or, or, or just the boundaries. There's a line that uh, Drez from Black Sheep says to take Funky Drummer and give it back to James. So there was a period where James Brown and George Clinton was they pl- played out. Yeah, was, was, kinda, was a yeah. played out idea because it got used and abused like. People just make songs out of whole entire volumes. I'll take the drums from track number two and I'll add the bass line from track number three and then put the keyboards and scratch in from track number five and all these different combinations. Like you could pretty much predict what hip hop would sound like for the next year by what Ultimate Breaks and Beat album was out. Exactly. So by the time 1992 came, um, there were a group of producers, um, Large Professor, Pete Rock, um. Yeah, Q-Tip, uh, DJ Premier, Jazzy Jeff. I mean, a whole bunch of cats that were using jazz records. Stuff that wasn't on Ultimate Beats and Breaks, and and using it as their as their their canvas and their backdrop. And that's what I deem the the Renaissance period of hip hop. This is Questlove Supreme, Fontigolo, Sugar Steve, Unpaid Bill, Boss Bill. Welcoming Dr. Renaissance himself. Give it up for Dante Ross, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, sir. Yo, yo, what up? What up? (laughs) Dante, I have so many freaking questions to ask you. I'm so scared right now. Nah, (laughs) man, you know. It gets scary. Nah, I'm like, dude, you, if, I mean, everyone always has this like, oh, the soundtrack of my life, but I mean, you, you're like one of the unsung heroes of the the Renaissance period of hip hop. Like you were there to witness a lot of his historical firsts. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna try to come off like a professional journalist that I am, and not not just a fan. Well, first I got to know about your beginnings. Like where did you come from? So I was born in San Francisco, California. I moved here when I was two, and I grew up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. My mother was a school teacher, and I grew up on 9th Street and Avenue B and then 2nd Street and Avenue B. So you were in the period of New York when that part wasn't even gentrified or... Spanish was 
the language of my block. So, <laughs> really? Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, I That's up, when it was Alphabet City. Alphabet I grew City. up in a almost entirely Puerto Rican neighborhood. So, you know. A lot of us would, you know, there was a period where I just thought a lot of the uh, important white players of, of classic hip-hop, I just thought you all were Puerto Rican because <laughs> in my mind I couldn't even conceive. Like, I thought the Beastie Boys were Puerto Rican. I mean, I wanted oh, wow. to be Puerto Rican. I couldn't wait to grow a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> my, boys, my boys called me Sorta Rican growing up. <laughs> Sorta Rican. Wow. Which, which was better than Juhu, the other one they called me. Ah. So. <laughs> wait, these two just <laughs> woke too. up like, wait. <laughs> I, I definitely was, I, I passed for a Puerto Rican whenever possible as a job. So, so when, so how did music enter your, your, Life. I mean, music was always in my house. My mom loved music. She loved soul music. Like, she loved Otis Redding and Bill Withers, Aretha Franklin. And she also liked singer-songwriter stuff like Neil Young and Bob Dylan. And my pops is a, he's an old, like, jazz dude. So um, he was, like, always into jazz. And, and I grew up um, up the block from a famous jazz drummer named Ed Blackwell. Okay. And um, you know, he played with, with uh, Ornette Coleman and, and a ton of people. And uh, I was in his house a lot, and I was just always around music. Like, I remember going with him and his family even to, to hear Ornette and them jam when I was like eight, nine years old. So, you know, and I lived on top of a social club and my bedroom was right on top of the jukebox and they were playing stylistics and dramatics. Everything that was popping back then, Ed, Edward Devon and Superfly, I went to see it when I was nine or 10. My sister's boyfriend took me and I just was always around music. We had block parties on my block. So I, I loved disco and, and all that kind of music when I was young and I just grew up around it. It was always... Omnipresent in every environment I was in as a child. So was it to the point where you felt like this is a career, or just like it just nah, happened to be nah, around? Nah, nah, definitely not. I had no idea, but I did. I always like read the back of record covers, and I always wanted to know like Steve Cropper was, because mm-hmm. so I was like, who's that? Who's that guy? And who's who's Jerry Wexler? And I always wanted to know who people were. You know who. Who's uh, this guy and that guy? I was just fascinated by by who, the names. Like I wanted to know who the guys were who weren't the artist. Um, and and I had a family friend, uh, Joel Brodsky. He's a famous photographer, and he shot the Isaac Hayes movement album covers. He shot all the stack stuff. And uh, because being around Joel and his coming to Graffiteria, I, I saw a lot of the imagery. He shot like um, Funkadelic records and all the stuff. So I uh, I was always into it. My sister's eight years older than me too. And she was a music head, so I I, uh, I always played her records, and whatever she was jamming to, I I basically got into. Ah, see, tri- my sister was Mad Hood. Tri- <laughs> she was like Super Hood when we were growing up. Trick trickled down. Uh, econ- well, oftentimes I I noticed that people that, uh, especially in music, is today a lot of it is trickled down from older cousins, older siblings. So are you the youngest of your brood? Or- I am. Well, well, I have a younger sister, but I wasn't raised with her. My half sister, so yeah, I am. And if I you inherited- mind me asking, what year were you born? Nineteen sixty-five. Okay, okay. And, and I inherited my sister's record collection, and much later in life, Joel gave me a lot of his records as well. So, and, and I got my mom's records. I was a lot of the records that I had came from my family, you know, that I still even have. And so I was always like aware of um, records like Just Begun and Soul Makosa and and all those records. I, I listened to them all as a kid. I knew them all. So, so did you? know about it from just having it or just from a hip-hop perspective no i knew from having it and because they had block parties in my neighborhood mm-hmm. and uh they'd always play those kind of records just begun for sure and wow. stuff like funky penguin and 
and all those kind of records got played. So, you know, people were in the street dancing, and it was just the music around me as a child. Do you remember the first album you purchased? Definitely, Jackson 5, Christmas album. Wow. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> crying, crying. 100%. Don't cry, don't cry. Yeah, I used to, uh, my parents used to make me perform that uh, that Jermaine skit. Do you have it, the Christmas album? I do not have the Christmas album. My Christmas album was the James Brown Christmas album. I mean, I was a Jackson 5 fanatic. Oh, I had the welfare the... one? Yeah, James Santa Claus was coming <laughs> to the ghetto. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. I got it. No, but there's one song where, like, James is talking about, like, he's so down on his luck that he even went to the welfare and <laughs> couldn't find Santa Claus there. <laughs> yeah, that was my Christmas album. That one spoke to my reality. I was a Jackson 5 fanatic. I bought all wow. the 45s, ABC, Want You Back, at Bates Record Store on Delancey Street. Wow. My sister would take me. I get my lines. So I buy a 45 almost every week. How much were 45s back then? 75 cents. Jesus Christ. Wow. Yeah. So just a record a week in. Record a week. That's amazing. I bought all, all the hits. Any, you know, Casey and the Sunshine Band, SOS. Uh, not SOS Band. Um, Send New SOS, the Hughes Corporation. Right. Um, all those records. You know, I bought all, George McRae. You know, whatever was popping right then. You know, whatever was out, I bought. Whatever was on the radio, I went and bought them, so. That's that's probably the mom and pop record store. To me, like the local mom and pop record store is like the the one element that. I remember the first rock record I ever bought was um, um, Queen, um, Bohemian Rhapsody. I heard it on the radio. I lost my mind. I couldn't I couldn't comprehend what it was, and I, I listened to radio all day till they played it again, and then I went and bought it like a couple of days later. So did you record songs off the radio? I like, did. Before line in, line out, like record. Yeah, put, with wow, my tape player the, right there. Up, yeah. up, up against the speaker. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> used to do that with Soul Train. You used to put the tape recorder oh, on the TV. Yeah. Audio record. Soul, I, wasn't yeah. a, I wasn't that technically advanced at that age. <laughs> I wasn't savvy yet. But we used to have Soul Train parties, too, in my friend William Dickerson's house down the block. Soul Train would come on a wheel, and his mom would have us do the Soul Train line. <laughs> wow. Really? Yeah, yeah. I grew up on a, on a block. There was like seven Puerto Rican kids, two black kids, and me. So you were just alone, just like Sesame Street. What it was? McDonald Land. <laughs> no, so you were just a lone white kid. Yeah, man, it was all good though. Did they hesitate to remind you of that every oh, time? No, I thought my I thought my middle name was well, White he, Boy until I was about fifteen. And no, but. there was always there was always like one cool white boy like on the block though, like even yeah, it's pretty much true. So white John was was a kid on in Southwest Philly. It's usually White Mike. Usually, if you we ask had Prince a White Paul, Mike, we had always a White, a white Mike. Mike. Now, did you have to overcompensate? Because Chappelle hilariously says that whenever you see the one lone white guy hanging yeah, with a bunch extra, of brothers, yeah, I had he's to be extra. extra wild. I had to be when I was ain't young, no telling sure. what he did to get their respect. Yeah. <laughs> I think that you can apply that to like light skinned black people too. Like all the revolutionaries uh, oh, are light skinned. Like yes. they be the hardest, most, <laughs> most revolutionary. Militant. Yeah, Huey Newton was yeah they, overcompensatory. They, Besides Marcus Garvey <laughs> and Martin Luther King, right. every revolutionary we had was light skinned. Like in the seventies in New York, people just taking your shit. You were just people was getting robbed. Like you just got taken all the time if you didn't step up. So. You know, just had to be strength in numbers, and you had to be. You didn't ready. have an older brother or older cousin. I had an older cousin. But he was a dope fiend, so uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't helping a lot. So you didn't have the, the luxury of him. Get the nah, fuck nah, you but up. My, my sister went out with this big black cat named Sam Lewis, and Sam used to put it down. <laughs> Sam was like, "No, nah, that's my little G. You can't mess with him." <laughs> I have respect from Sam. Yeah, that's the one thing you never wanted to hear on the playground, which was, "I'm gonna get my mm, so and the so fuck, to fuck you, you up." up. 
like True. calling in the cavalry. True. <laughs> I, I was a good athlete as a kid too, so I always like had some dab because of that. I played at the boys' club and I played basketball, baseball. I was like a a real jock when I was young, so you know I always always got a pass because of that. All right. So as you got older, uh, I mean, how did I know that block parties were always you know in your life, as you said, but. I mean, did they have MCs there, or was nah, it just no like... MCs? It was pre-MCs. There was it was really pre-rap. Rap wasn't on the map yet. And I remember, I think I was in sixth grade when I first heard rap, and it was um, it was a uh, uh, Sugar Hill Gang, mm-hmm. and my friend Columbus Van Horn told me that that was that there was this dude Grandmaster Flash, and he got me a tape. It was in seventh or sixth grade, and he lent me a tape, and that tape was um, it was uh, one of the Flash tapes. I think it was Fifty Beats one of those and had birthday party on it. I remember that clearly. And I used to just listen to it all the time. I didn't want to give him back his tape. And I uh, finally had to give it back to him because I didn't have a tape to tape back then. I don't, I don't know if they were invented yet, but that's when I really started to, to be enamored by what was becoming rap and, and kind of saw that there was something beyond just that Sugar Hill record. Really? Yeah. And, and then, and then I heard Led Zeppelin and, and all that shit. And I kind of like lost interest, you know, cause it was, it was uptown. It was like, you know, when Sugar Hill came out, that was like a novelty hit. That wasn't like, it was, there wasn't a lifestyle attached to it yet, mm-hmm. at least where I lived. Like, we didn't know about that, really. So there was a period in which you were going to just not go straight rock, but you discovered the... Yeah, and also, like, funk. I was really into funk, too. I was into, like, um, Brothers Johnson and, oh, wow. and stuff like that. Like, I like Parliament, Brothers Johnson, all that stuff that was out at that time. Because funk was kind of like... It was the middle ground, you know, it wasn't like it was it was kind of half rock and it was just kind of what you listened to back then. Funk was popping. And you weren't a DJ or had aspirations to be one? No. You just happened to know a like lot of information about records. I know a lot about records. Wow. I always collected records. So that that must have been amazing to at least there was a point where it was a novelty for a white person to know a lot about black music. You think? Um at least around my way, like I, I remember being impressed with uh, this kid. Uh, I think Danny Dicatonio. I, f- I forget his last name, but he knew, he knew. Gino Stachigracci. Is he friends with Columbus Van <laughs> like Horn? No, no, no. But he knew. No, don't mess with my man Columbus. I mean, that's a name. If you call Columbus Columbus, he'd be like, "Yo, my name's Jackie." <laughs> Straight up. No, but he knew T Connections like Groove to Get Down, like something that was so obscure and so breakbeat black that I was like, wow, you you really know your records. I mean, we used to roll a disco when we were young, like, so that was also like, you know, all those records were records we were, we were rocking with, so. You know, like Slave, Touch of Love, all, all the roller disco jams. Oh, wow. So when you became a professional... <laughs> Am I a professional? That's, that's open to debate, man. <laughs> well, how did, how did you... Was Def Jam your first label, or, like, did you... Yeah, yeah. So, I, actually, I... The, the myth is I worked at Def Jam. I actually worked at Rush Productions. And there was a difference? Not really. There was like, well, like, if you worked at Rush, you got Lior's lunch. If you worked at Def Jam, you got Russell's lunch. <laughs> <laughs> was like, that was the difference. So what's the difference between, well, yeah, I mean, both both logos held holy for anybody that was. Rush Town, man. So what was the difference between the two worlds? About what I just said. <laughs> lunch. The, the lunch. <laughs> Leo was meaner than Russell. Really? Oh, yeah. Please. Still is. I'm Even sure. when he was younger? 
Oh, he was meaner than he's nice now. Leo so gentle now. Yeah, he's a nice. I mean, I love Leo. Even when he was mean, Leo like without Leo, I might not have a life. So I love Leo. He's he's my that's my rabbi. All right, so <laughs> Leo, uh, can I can I do I have the liberty to say that Leo effectively replaced Rick Rubin? I wouldn't say that there was there was there was a lot. So of was mix. there was Leo even at Def Jam when Rick Rubin was at the helm? Not really. So Rick and Rick. Never went to the office, and and once Rick realized how important he was, he he wasn't around a lot, and he wanted to make rock records, and and really the Beastie Boys and everything that happened licensed to Ill was the divide between Rick and Leor. That's really when it all happened. Okay, so to update the the those that are listening, uh, of course, Def Jam is probably the most important. Hip hop, hundred percent label. It's the that foundation. Of all yeah, time. it's it's, it's the also Motown. it's also the first label or hip hop entity that was cognizant that cool white people were an active and participant and monetizable audience in rap music. And Russell's the first guy to see that. You know that's why he's so smart. He realized he could sell Run DMC to white America. That he could sell rap music to the middle of the country. I always wanted to know why he wouldn't put Run DMC on Def Jam. And he, they, were signed, they already signed a profile. Yeah, they were signed a profile. They lost. Was the contract that yeah, extended? Yeah, they, they tried. Oh, well, they tried. And, and and those guys, you know. They like, lost years over that. They like, did. With, they lost three years. It kind of ruined their career. Mm-hmm, that Because it was that gap between. Um, tougher than was, leather and. and tougher than from, leather and. Back and, from uh, hell. And back from. No, 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 no. What back from hell? It was. Uh, Raising, Raising hell. hell. It was Raising and hell and tougher than leather. It was those years. Oh, yeah, so yeah, those yeah. three years? Yeah. 100%. That's when the game changed. Even in the book, the, uh, the Run DMC book, they talk about it. Because at the time, when that came out. They, they were, were dated. Like, they were done. They, they was were like done. he. He said DMC. He said he knew it was over when I think I guess the the tough and leather came out and they were listening to Nation of Millions and they right. were just like, dude, hundred percent, we're done, hundred percent, right? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, they wanted to get them off there, and, and Corey Robbins and Steve Palotnicki, they had them, they had them hemmed up. They couldn't get them off the label. But but my my working at Def Jam, like I. I, so I grew up kind of with the Beastie Boys. I knew them since junior high school, and we were all into punk rock. And then hip hop came along, and uh, we all got swept up in that. That was that kind of took our lives over. It was really Run DMC. That was a band we heard, and they sounded so punk rock, like they were so abrasive, and and it was like they dressed like the audience. They didn't dress like a broke Rick James. So, <laughs> right. So, so we were like, yo, this is the craziest shit ever, and that that was really what like. That's what hooked us for life. That's what it was. Well, and, yeah, and cats have to out. know that, you know, early hip hop was just mirroring. It was what, disco. It was, it was disco, disco with rap. Yeah. And P Funk was still a thing. So, you know, I mean, P I'm sure the Africa Bambada and then we're trying to emulate the yeah, crazy they outfits. Like, yeah, Earth, Wind, and Fire and shit. Like yeah, so exactly. If anything, Run DMC was, they were Nirvana, what Nirvana did to metal bands in 91. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Run DMC did to. They changed, and it, and it happened to Run DMC. Yeah, cats. You know, cats showed them the door. You know, it, because it they happened. stopped. Because cats stopped hollering. MC stopped. It wasn't about. Well, Rakim was Rakim was intricate, and you know that was it. Every five years, but yeah, but back to Lior. So okay, so Lior, what was <laughs> his position? Was I he mean, was what, the president of Rush Productions, a Rush Town Management. Okay, so he was. Did he hire you? So I got hired. This is the craziest. So I got hired because my friend Sean Carroll's off. Rest in peace. AKA the captain, he road managed the Beasties. He was like my best friend. And uh, he plugged me in with the job. Ricky Powell went on tour with the Beasties. 
I stayed, and um, I mean, my lady wouldn't let me go on tour. I had a girlfriend at the time who I lived with, and she was like, "No way, you're going on tour with those guys." Um, I can so, I can imagine because I met Ricky Powell in his later years. Ricky Powell was like, well, by then he was their their. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm about to say court jester. <laughs> well, they called him the trim coordinator. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> wrong though. Dave, he Skil- Dave Skilkin, rest in peace. You're right. Dave he Skilkin was, was the trim coordinator. You're right. And Dave, Dave was the coolest cat ever. Dave and Ricky were like, they're, you know, I love Ricky, but Dave was infinitely cooler than Ricky could ever be. <laughs> I Dave met- was. Dave had game for days. So yeah, I, I guess I I met the Beastie Boys and they're like responsible. Buddhist. Yeah, you met him in the Dalai Lama year. Yeah, like <laughs> their vegan stage, and they were all responsible and respectable and everything. And I was looking for like the the beer cans and the phalanx symbol. That, and that's what House of Pain and them told me too. They wanted to tour with the Beastie Boys, and they wanted to like, where's the exploding dick? Yeah, man. <laughs> like, like, they were like, yo, what do you mean? Like, we, you guys don't go out and get drunk and be people. Like, you don't go crazy. So by that point, yeah, uh, he he was taking photos. He was taking he was. a lot of photos. He, uh, he was also. Uh, yeah, he was being nefarious. I'll leave it at that. But, I mean, I could imagine how crazy Ricky Powell was he during was, that license. So you went he, on he a license to tour? I, I was on the, the first leg, and then I came home. Yo, what was that like? <laughs> the what, was that, what was that like? <laughs> it was a little wild, man. I remember I went to L.A. with, with Eric Hayes, the graphic designer, and we, Hayes. we ran around with them dudes, and we got him a skateboard deal. Um, that never came out, and that was like the first thing I ever did in the business when I first got a job, and... I guess I'd hit a home run, and they let me hang out for a while, and then I went home and stole Ricky Powell's job. Basically, um, Sean was like, yeah, Dante should do it, and I was the office flunky. And uh, But I went out every night. I went to nightclubs every night, and I started to hang out with Russell a lot. Um, and all those guys, they took me out, and, and they'd always ask me what records were, were the records. Like, what's popping up here? What's popping? I would go to Latin Quarters, spots they weren't going to. And they always want to pick my brain. And I realized, like, hey, I might know something i might maybe be an a&r guy and bill stephanie aka mr bill yes. wanted to hire me as an a&r guy and they didn't give me the job but he always was like yo i want to hire you he always told me you you really know music and he was like one of the first guys who really let me know and 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 um and the guy chuck d too chuck d and me would rap about music forever um, so, so I give a lot of props to Chuck D too. Did Bill work at Def Jam proper? Yeah, he did. He was, I think he was he, a public, was he? I think was he was the president. Adler. Was it, oh, Bill no. Adler was a publicist. Was Bill Adler, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think, I think he might Bill have Stephanie. been the president of Bill Stephanie, Mr. Bill. And he grew up with Public Enemy. Wow. So just during that period, like what, I mean. I mean, it, it was me, Faith Newman, Bill Stephanie, Bill Adler, wow. Hank Shockley. We all worked in the office. Leor Cohen and like you never knew who was coming in the office run came in one day and yelled at LL like it was it was just wild like it was like <laughs> there was antics going around and and I uh I became friends with Jam Master Jay I used to play ball with Jay a lot because I was like I was really into playing basketball back then were you official did you have a, a first edition Def Jam jacket I did I had a I had a burgundy jacket for sure so with my that, name on did it. that mean everything that meant you could get into any club for free um and and definitely meant that chicks were checking for you so, and it coincided, I, I was in the Stussy ad back then, too. So, between those two things, <laughs> b- between those two things, it was like, I was like 19, 20 years old, and I, I you know, I could do a lot of things. I, I was brand name below 14th Street. So, you mentioned the Latin Quarter. Latin Quarter was I, I've never heard a club more name dropped 
in classic hip hop. I mean, because that's where the change in the guard comes from. That's where that next wave came from. Can you tell me what a typical night was in the Latin Quarter? Typical night of the Latin Quarters was... What night was it? It was it was Friday was the night you wanted to go. So Red Alert DJ, um, and and it was always Brooklyn Violator Beef. That was always possible to jump off. So You said beef. Beef, like okay. serious beef, like for real, real live beef. See, because when you went to rap shows back then, it was dangerous. Like and 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 you didn't care. I mean, I'd have nothing to take. What are you gonna take? My Def Jam jacket? <laughs> no, I didn't have no. I had thirty six dollars, man. So if someone would come in profiling like with a bunch of slick Rick Gold on, oh, you could take, be a people taking your shit. That's it. Four Green Mission Posse. All the dudes on the back. Eric's album. They might grab your shit. Or, or some <laughs> other people. Or the A Team. Kane's people. Uh-huh. You know, there was there was a lot of people out there who were doing a lot of things. And uh, I was friends with Red, so so um. I had a pass. I didn't have to check my coat. I could go upstairs, hang out with Red. That's how I met. I, I met. That's how I met D Nice. I knew Karis One back then. Search is the only other white dude I ever seen there. Oh, and Dave Funkenklein, rest in peace. Um, you know, it was it was a wild environment. But uh, you know, you'd see like a great act. You might see Just Ice and KRS would come out. I seen Dougie battle uh, Bismarcky on the beatbox at the anniversary yeah. and Dougie pulled out the harmonica and slayed Biz. What? Said, Dougie played the harmonica? Played the harmonica. And beatbox at the same time? And beatbox at the same time and did the cool ass Dougie dance and he was just, <laughs> wow. I, I mean, Doug to me is the greatest dude who didn't have the biggest record ever because he was the best performer pretty much. I mean, I, he was amazing. I saw MC Lights for a show. I seen Kane DJ for Shantae. He was, he was the DJ back then. He would DJ for everybody before he was an artist. And my friend, my friend Keo, he's another white guy, but he, he was so extra, extra. Uh, my man Blake Latham, he told me that Kane was the best rapper in Brooklyn, and I wanted to bring Kane in the office. And, and Russell said, nah, he, he's fucking with Fly Time, them, and we can't steal artists from them because we're doing their deal at Warner Brothers. I remember that Chris Rock used to do comedy up there. I mean, it was, you know, Karis one of them, and... How big wild. was this club? Like how how many people? Maybe a thousand hit? people, okay. not even. Maybe it was you know, o- small. On Forty Sixth Street, right? Yeah, right there. It was right there. It was it was you know uh, upstairs. It was Heather Hunter was the coat check girl. What's wow. the soul food? <laughs> what's the soul food uh, spot on Forty Fifth? Uh, I mean, Popeyes uh, was Virgil's? on Virgil's. Street. Virgil's, Virgil's. yes. Virgil's. Oh, that, okay. that is that's the Latin Quarter. No. Well, at least across the street, the hotel that's Latin across Quarters the street was on Broadway. It was right on the block between Broadway and Seventh. It's not there anymore. It's a parking lot now in a big building. It's been torn down. So it's not on 46th Street or 45th? It's on 46th. It's not there anymore. Popeye's was right across the street. McDonald's was uh, a block I remember down. where the... Oh, guys, it bad that I remember where the Popeye's is. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I saw Salt and Pepper. I seen Sandy get a chain taken right in front of Popeye's. Wow. It was like, yeah, that's a nice chain. Bang. Is that just typical, like... That was how it was. I mean, you know you know who I knew back then? Clark Kent. That was my man. Like, Shout out to Clark, Clark Kent. Kent. from back then. Yeah, he was always the coolest cat. He was cool back then. I love Clark. He, he got me my, my deal with uh, Nike. That's my big guy, I love man. Clark. That's my brother. So you would go there just on the week? And- I go every Friday. Every Friday for about a year, I go to Latin Quarters, and, and it was just a wild spot. Other spots we go to is Red Parrot was was popping on, on 57th. Um, occasionally, that, that became the Copa. Then there was downtown parties like Payday, um, Milky Way. Um, man, I, I mean, I went to like, I went everywhere, man. I went to the rooftop. I went to everything. You know, I, I went to Skate Key. So was there a difference between the Harlem parties and the... Oh, hell yeah. So what's Super a different. rooftop party? What's the difference between... I mean, Like, could Karis one go to Harlem and... Of course. He would, he would kill it. I mean, the rooftop was like for 
100% I'm the only white guy there. 100%. <laughs> and um, downtown parties, you know, they had much hotter girls, less threat of violence. Um, you know, cats So the rooftop a- was more... There violent? Were, there was quarters. No quarters was the most violent because dudes from Brooklyn wouldn't go to the to rooftop, right? Because they uptown, didn't check your coat or to get in or anything. You had to check your coat everywhere, except if you knew people at the quarters. You didn't have to check your coat. So if you came, if you came with red alert, you don't have to check your coat. Ah, uh, depending on who you came in the door with. So you know there was hierarchy. Wow, wow, wow. So this guy ran the quarters. Name was Mike. Mike Goldberg. He was a Jewish guy. He'd be at the door count. He'd be at the door, and he would all. And this dude Pee Wee who got killed was the the bouncer and this dude House. And I knew them all. They would all be like, "Oh, you good? Who you with? Like, come on, you good?" So I got to know them all. Whew. That, so much history in quarters where I saw everybody. That's where everyone came from, though. Karis One came, Bismarcky, Jewish Crew, Rakim, everybody. All right, can I ask you? Have you seen somebody? Not make a good impression on the Latin Quarter Club that otherwise became MC Hammer. Really? Ooh, wow! Got really? Wait a minute! New Music Seminar. They, MC Hammer here? performed at the Latin Quarter during the New Music Seminar when the quarters wasn't even a spot no more, and he didn't rock. I mean, so, he had all what year? Wait, is, is this the, the my, my chronological order is bad? But I know Grand Poobah was there too because we were laughing. So would this be the? <laughs> would that possibly be the incident that's being referred to at the Hammer. beginning of the the Turn This Mother Out video? One hundred percent. They say you ain't hitting in New York. You ain't hitting in New 100%. York. Okay. So that wow. was 87, 88? Yeah, Maybe 88 because Quarters was on the way down. Wow. Wait, yeah, because his I album thought, was 88. That, so let's get it started. It was 88. It's 87. Yeah. Summer, Wait, in my, in my head, I'm thinking like you're speaking of 1988, 89, 90. So you're saying that it was on a decline even in 88? 88, 88 it, was, it, was on its, it was starting to be a little too violent. Little, It just wasn't popping like it was because you could go to downtown parties and it wasn't as violent, right? And there was more girls. All right, so a nerd like myself, where would I go? What year? 89. Now, mind you, 89, you I probably was in the away. basement at home studying. You, you might go to Nell's or you might go to um, to Milky Way, depending on what you want to do. Popeyes. Popeyes, for sure. Popeyes, one more go. McDonald's. Uh, <laughs> all right, so should we get in the block of music before we start talking about his yeah, life sure. as a and r Yo, man, I got I got geek out just on on hip hop folklore. Uh, this is Dante Ross on Quest Love Supreme, only on Pandora. Um, I guess we're gonna go into uh, some SD fifty stimulated. Or, or, what is stimulated dummies? Like, so why Bu- did you Buster name Rhymes gave us that name because he was like y'all some stimulated dummies when we were working with LONS way back. Who were wow. the stimulated dummies? It was me, my partner John Gamble, and my partner Gibby Dejani, and and. Uh, we all had various roles at different times. John was the engineer. Me and Gibby were more the diggers. Wow. That's incredible. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. 
In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Three strikes to five thousand. 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 So that was Three Strikes 5,000, third base on Questlove Supreme. Uh, produced by our guest, Dante Rost and the Stimulated Dummies, the SD50s. So I guess we should well, start You with, know what those drums are, right? Uh, mm. I just copped a clean copy of the 45 again, too. What is it? It's a super fine from behind woman by the Cleveland Wrecking Crew. Wow. I never would have guessed that. I, I was with Large the other day and I was like, you got this? He was like, damn. So you're still digging? I still dig for 45s. Large and Diamond got me back into it recently. <sighs> I'm, yeah. The, I've the been running around with Large digging. lately. Large Pro is like, 
he just he took me back. Yeah, I, I thought I was out the game of digging, and then I saw Diamond cutting, Diamond D cutting uh, these records on YouTube, yeah, 45s, 45s, and then yeah. like, and then it pulled me right back into it. Like he was cutting the Booker T, he was killing it. I, I wanted to get out. I literally wanted to get out the game of digging, and now it's keep calling me. It's <laughs> I'm just on the 45s. I'm yeah, no, same 45s. here. Like I'm only collecting 45s now. And is it because we're bored or we just we're want old, we're bored. I, I bought every sneaker. I don't need any more Jordans. <laughs> <laughs> I got a house. <laughs> now, what am I going to do? So how did you become A&R? Was it by design or just Nah, it was default, man. I was just I knew music and I was always around and and uh Daddy-O from Stetsasonic, he loved me. That's that's my OG. And he, they offered him a job at Tommy Boy, and he plugged me in. And he was like, I, I'm not, I don't want to do it, but my, my little homie right here. And I went to meet Monica, and she liked me, and I had a second interview. She played me De La Soul's demo, and I lost my mind, and she hired me a couple of days later. This is Monica Lynch? Yep, Monica Lynch, who's also, uh, she's like one of my mentors. She's a, one of the smartest people and, and the most integral people I've ever worked with. She's a wonderful person. So... Well, not what was it like working at Tommy Boy. Tommy Boy was wild. That was, uh, man, that was a wild job, man. I was a wild kid back then, too. It was like a whole different life. The the one thing that Paz told me that blew my mind. (laughs) I'm scared right now. (laughs) The one thing that Pasta News uh, told me that blew my mind about (laughs) making Three Feet High and Rising uh, was the fact that they made that entire record for about $25,000, which if you know what record budgets are, I mean, even in the height of, of overindulgent recording budget uh, figures, let's, let's pick it. Let's say 1994. If you're a successful uh, R&B act, I know that in Vogue was, I think that the second budget for their budget for funky divas was like, in the area of two million, whereas, you know, a cat like Michael Jackson, you know, I'm certain that his budget was closer to ten million for like even a compilation like history. History, yeah. But somebody had to pay for that statue. <laughs> <laughs> Did he float it down a river yeah. or some shit? In yeah, Russia, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a lot of animals you bought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but how in God's name were these budgets being like? That's the first thing I would ask I mean, a lot of my were, favorites about, like, what were the recording budgets? Like, Cypress I mean, Hill told me, like, well, we had a good budget, 90000 yep. And I'm like, what? Uh, yep. You can, how? I mean, like, people were just so happy to get on. You know what I mean? And studio time was cheap. And, and the crazy thing about Daylight is they made most of that record in the studio. It wasn't like they came with, like, anything. Mm-hmm. We were all recording analog, so everything's done in real time. You know, and, and they came in with the records and sampled half of them right there. Wow. It wasn't like Paul was showing up with discs. It was like most of that stuff got made right then and there. And with the samples, how did you guys handle that well, at well, the time? Well, we cleared we cleared all except one, the one we got caught for. <laughs> the turtles. The turtles. Because he thought it's just an interlude. It's a skit. Eh, it doesn't count. And um, I mean, the one thing I'll say about Dela and Paul is they had a lot of those ideas already. And and you know this, you know this, Quest. It's like 
you have a lot of that stuff mapped out in your head already. You know, I'm going to use this with this, with this, with this, with this. So when you get in the studio, because you don't have any home equipment, you do your stuff mad quick. You know exactly what you're going to use. It's kind of like you've already sorted it out in your mind. All right. So we have Bob Power uh, also on Questlove Supreme, and I was trying to get him. So to- Powers did some of that record. Not that much, though. Right. But my point was that the the most important element of what made Three Feet High and Rising Three Feet High and Rising were the skits. And I was trying, I mean, the way that it felt, it felt like it was happening in real time. Right. It felt spontaneous. Right. But I know that, you know, mics have to be set up and samplers have to be pressed and looped and all these things. So something like Take It Off, uh, uh, just a, 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 a mindless litany of 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 them dissing fads and and hip-hop sounds uh rather it sounded spontaneous at the time or even can you keep a secret where i first heard dante is a scrub i mean why do they call you a scrub by the way because this is great so like were you were you the boss bill of three feet iron rising (laughs) i don't know about that i was really into playing sports back then and just athletic like it's like a skateboarder and all that and we went to play basketball in l.a um, with some of the rhyme syndicate and those dudes couldn't play ball. I was like, Jesus Christ, you fucking scrubs. <laughs> I, this car, I was like, look at you guys. Like, really? Um, and that's really where it came from. And then another time we went to Houston, it was like 110 degrees and they wouldn't go swimming. And I like, you know, I was in the pool. Like, are you kidding me? You scrubs? Like you ain't going in the water. <laughs> and they like wouldn't go in the water. So that was that. And that's, they were like, okay, we got you. So when they're turning this into you guys, like, I mean, how, how do you A&R Three Feet High I mean, Rising? I mean, I was there the whole time they made it pretty much, so it wasn't like they were turning it into me. I was like, I was in the studio like 90% of the time. Um, and, and we were just enamored because the first two singles had hit. We, we knew we had something. And the biggest quandary was, do we put the album out in October or November or do we save it to next year? And we pushed it back. I was going to say, you released it in January of 89. Yeah, because yeah, we didn't want to put it out at the end of the year in the fourth quarter and have, have it miss. And, and you know, me, myself, and I, it's funny because that was not one of the first songs they gave us. But when we heard it, we knew it was a hit. And what was what was ironic is that the first two records, we had we had K-Day on retainer, basically. And so they had a, they <laughs> wow. had a big West Coast audience. Um, we would go to K-Day every time we were out there. I went with them. We did shows at World on Wheels, which was the craziest crypt-out spot ever. And, um, man, we had an audience out there, you so know? So that, that was the Latin quarter of... Yeah. The West Coast. That's when we first seen gangbanging. Me and Paz almost got arrested, Jay walking on the street. We seen dudes with Jerry Crows, all that. I met Dre back then. I met Dre and, and Ice Cube. It was it was bugged out. We met 783. Oh, we wow. met Cypress wow, before man. they were Cypress. Like all that. Oh, cool and Cali. I forgot about 783. Yeah, that was the Alchemist. Uh, was it? That was Mugs. Oh, I'm sorry. Mugs. Mugs. I was about to say, Alchemist was, was like 12 not, years yeah. old. We don't, we don't all look alike. <laughs> <laughs> who was Al? Who was, it was, Al who was, was in the Hooligans. Hooligans. That, damn. I'm tripping. I'm getting my West Coast history mixed up. Mudfoot. Wow. So, how... I mean, how, how do you sell De La Soul? Because well, we already had a captive audience, so it wasn't a hard sell. That that's you know that's what you're taking out of the equation. They already had a validated fan base. We knew it. Those singles were selling. But we were on the radio, daytime radio in New York, in L.A. We knew they could sell tickets. People were going to see them when De La Soul played. Everyone would go to see them. They were the coolest band. So to us, it was more like. 
oh, where's the single? We have a single now. How do we run with this? Let's run. And Monica came up with a lot of the imagery. She she just poured water. She like she she put grow, growth powder on like what they already had. <laughs> like she threw grow lights on the hippie image, you know. And they kind of that was them naturally. They were just different. And she instead of you know um, pondering it, she was like, oh, let's run with this. This is great. And and to her credit, she somehow knew that collegiate white America would eat it up, and they did. I mean, it went it went quick, man. It was it was it was not slow. Like really, they they were on they were on from from the minute the album came out. Well, I, yeah, my, I always say that that album literally cut a lot of the bullying around my neighborhood off. <laughs> it became cool to be weird. Yeah, literally, because even before, like before then, uh, my only black hippie reference was like maybe. Prince's Sign of the Times period. Right. Of which it was still shaky in the hood. But once 89 rolled around and Kat saw me, especially after the potholes in my lawn video, they were just like, oh, oh, okay, you crazy like the daylight guys. And like, that was my past. Like, suddenly I became cool. It was validated. It was validated. Yeah, totally, yeah. 100%. I mean, they were just dressing like a lot of kids were dressing downtown. They were just from Long Island, but it wasn't rap dudes dressing like that. It was kids who were younger and more progressive. But the thing was, because of the defensive nature of De La Soul is Dead, yeah. I am to am I to believe that they did more fighting yeah. and defending themselves. I mean, if you ever talk to Paz, you know. I mean, man, me and Mace got in they trouble said everywhere. They, yeah, they got kicked <laughs> off the Nitro. How do you get kicked off the LL tour? I mean, they got in a fight. They were always, you know, they weren't having it. Like Mace is, you know, he was all of them. I mean, they're not soft kids. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, they're still young black men, even if like, they have some hippie imagery. They're like still down to go for this. Were they getting in fights because people because of their yeah, image? People tried to test them okay. for sure, for sure. Wow, you that's... know, Biddy's in the BK lounge. That says it yeah, all. Yeah, you know. I mean, Excuse granted, me. that's funny because because Paz hit me up today. Um, and I just those that's one of the greatest groups I ever worked with. They're like just even now they're just such great rappers, and that's the other thing. They invented an entire new way of rapping, right? Like they were unique and original. They weren't. They were sans cliches and tough guy bullshit. So the whole time there there wasn't any fear of this might not make it or not really, is... man. Because we we knew we had a captive audience. It wasn't. It you know we did two singles before. You got to remember, and both those singles hit. Plug tune in and Pottles hit. We knew we had something. Uh, also, I guess Latifah. You did you A and R her album completely yeah, I, or no? I didn't do the whole album. I signed her. I signed her because some Latin quarters. Forty five King came up to me and knew who I was and played me a beat tape. And I knew who he was because his promos were on Red Alert. And him and Fat Five Freddy called me up like I think it was that Monday on the phone and played me a bunch of Latifah records over the phone. And I don't know why Freddie didn't come to the meeting that week, but they came without Freddie and he brought the whole flavor unit. And we played a record. All 900 of them? No, nah, it was like four or five of them. It was Apache. Bass, Apache. Yeah. No, it was just Apache, oh, okay. Lati, Marky Fresh, who's who's a slept on, maybe member, and and 45 King. Uh. And um, and we decided we we're going to sign Latifah. I called Monica in and I said, play that again. We played it again and we ended up signing her. We signed her for Peanuts, too. Wow. And and I will tell you this. She's one of, un, unlike Dela, she exuded superstar energy from the minute I met her. She had a million dollar smile and she was funny and engaging. She had it. Like, I was like, this, she got it. She could sing and rap too. I didn't know she didn't write her raps back then. 
So she knew instantly Blamo. Like we were like, she I'm got a star. It. Yeah, I don't know if she knew it, but we knew it. Did you sign anyone else to Tommy Boy? Before Digital you? Underground, but then I left. I didn't. I didn't stay to make the record. I found you what you like. Because uh, I, I didn't make any money. How, how do they? How do they? come across your radar even uh this dude named atron gregory who had tnt records yeah, yeah. i knew him from from cats in the bay i have a lot of family in the bay and i met him when i was in the bay i can't remember what i was doing and he was like yo i got this record do what you like and bang 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 he and later did it tupac in. too right he did, yeah yeah, uh, exactly, yeah exactly and he he was working with digital back then and they gave me they had uh underwater rhymes was the record he gave me and then he sent me do what you like and then I was like, ooh, this one's popping. And we signed them. And I played Do What You Like in the conference room at Tommy Boy for Dayla. And they were like, you better sign that. Wow. Words, though. And then we signed them. And then, you know, I wasn't making any money. I started getting offers to get jobs um, elsewhere. I almost went to work at Capital for my man Tim Carr, who, who stole the beasties from, from Russell and them like a thief in the <laughs> night. My man, he tried to get me over there. And, and, um, and I didn't take the job. And I remember he had signed Mantronics. And... And he played me Mantronics new music, and I was like, I'm not feeling it. I was was like, that the the uh, Brooklyn got a way to get into you? Was it that? Got how you look? Maybe. I think it was. Yeah, it was yeah. Like it wasn't popping though. I like that one. I like that one. I did that joke. Yeah, that was the jam. That one was. It was cool. I like Joy Sims. Yeah, I liked all that. I think that that stuff was hot. But but so people were offering me jobs. Ended up taking a job at Electrica. So I like the guy. The guy. I mean, was Tommy Silverman upset or? Well, Tommy Silverman was mad cheap. Like I'm a, I'm gonna just say it straight up. Uh, my lawyer was was um, Andy Tavel at the time, and we wanted to get me like forty thousand a year, and he offered me like thirty. I was making like twenty five, maybe it was thirty something, and he offered me a company credit card too. And and my man was like, Andy Tabo was like, I got mad in the meeting. And he was like, Dante, relax. And after the meeting, he took me out. He said, that guy's small potatoes. There's a whole world for you out here. Relax. You have a big record. We're going to, we're going to, I'm going to shake some trees. An article mentioned me in the New York Times. And he started calling people. People started offering me jobs. Russell tried to get me to work there again. Um, Capital offered me a job. And I took a job. Um, literally I took a job at Electra Records cause I really liked the boss, Bob Krasnow. He, he told me he had signed Parliament Funkadelic back in the day and Richard Pryor. And I had a, I had a, I had a three finger ring on and he took my ring off. Uh, he asked me if he could try the ring on and he gave me some big diamond pinky ring. And I was like, yeah, we should trade rings. He's like, I don't think so, kid. <laughs> and, uh, and I just thought his whole, his whole style was, he was real cool. And, uh, he, he offered me real money and, um, I decided that's where I wanted to go. So you're saying that. A hip hop A and R. There was no such that thing was as a hip hop A and R yet. Okay, so what would a regular A and R if you're working at Atlantic? Sixty to a hundo as a director, maybe sixty, maybe a hundred. Wow. So the cat that like signs Led Zeppelin or there. Chic, yeah, back then they're making at least six figures. Yes, at, at a, least a hundred percent. And this is only because Tommy Boy was a small label and. Why? Yeah. Why did they? Like, when did the Warner deal go down? Like, why the Warner Brothers they... deal was already in place. So even then, yeah, yeah. And Monica, the crazy thing is, Monica didn't want me to leave, and I didn't want to leave. And I told Andy that he was like, "They're never gonna pay you." He's like, "I was like, but I love my groups." He's like, "They won't love you. Don't worry about it. Go get a check." Straight up, he told me he kicked the reel to me, and he was right. And um, <sighs> and and um, I wanted to sign Grand Poobah because I love Masters of Ceremony, and I had the brand newbie in demo. 
And Monica Lynch said, I just want to say to you, I don't think it's ethical if you sign Grand Poobah. And I was like, don't worry, I ain't going to sign Grand Poobah because I signed Brand Nubian. <laughs> <laughs> That was that was you know. So was that your first signing at nah, Electra? His man, Fonte's man. And that almost got me fired, yo, because she flopped. Yeah. And I was on the ropes. And then an article came out, Nelson George, my man, who who he Monica got so tight, she said Dante didn't really sign De La Soul and and he's Ooh. taking credit. He's executive producer. And Nelson George wrote some little thing about me. In his column and, and Billboard, and it, yeah, and he tried to do a takedown. He, I don't think he did it on purpose. I don't know what it was. You know, Nelson's my man. Whatever, blah blah blah. Went on the bridge, and then this lady I worked with, she she put she photocopied and put it in front of a couple of people, and they called me in the office, and I, and I thought they were gonna fire me out of flop, and that came out, and um, my boss was like, I don't care about all that. He's like, go make a hit. No one remembers. No one remembers the flops. That's what he told me, and um, brand Nubian. True. So we talked about Dela. Brand Nubian was signed for $55,000 and they went over budget and I thought I was going to get fired. And I told my boss, I said, I'm, I'm $12,000 over budget. He said, who cares? Metallica record costs a million dollars to make. Yeah. I was going to say yeah. like, at Apartheid. what point is it a good record? I said, I think it's great. Wow. So you're saying that hip hop, even in its classic phase was so cheap. Baltic Avenue, Mediterranean Avenue, on the that major labels just saw it as a a, a quickie, quickie cash. Who knew? I mean, you know what? I'll even blame myself a little bit on that, right? Because I thought that's what you paid for a record. I didn't say they need $200,000. I didn't know. I was coming from the Tommy Boy paradigm mm. of making records. So I thought you made a rap record for $50,000. I thought that was good. You didn't know the scale was yeah, that I didn't, big. Yeah, I had no concept. Mm. I had no, even, even being super cool with the BCs and seeing how rich they got, I still had no concept. I really didn't. I was young and naive. I did not know. So shout out to the beasties for realizing yeah, that overcharging they... niggas for what they did to the cold crush. <laughs> <laughs> so brand Nubian. Now yes. my favorite record I ever made. I'm just gonna say it right now. Dude, I, I I'm gonna you tell gonna you. Ask, are you gonna ask because I think I know where you're going, but I Well, I you was... know I gotta ask by the five mics. Or what? Well, they got five mics, right? Hell yeah. yeah. First five mics. Yeah. I, when I see Even it, though they had tried to do me, they still got five mics. <laughs> but you know something, though? It's, don't, don't say it was hot. I'm, okay, on, it, was, it wasn't hot. It wasn't Come hot. On, but it, I understood why. Because every record had that, had that record at the time. Well, it's weird you said it because, okay, so the day, are you remember when every seminal hip-hop release required like a mass listening amongst you and your boys like you all mm -hmm. sit in a room like this and you overanalyze it we smoke weed when we do that too <laughs> at least i did so the day that we listened to ready to die there was one song i ain't like on it what what, what, what was the one what was your one um respect yeah how you knew that but even <laughs> that to me was like even though it was the worst song it was still pretty good Yo, I mean, before that record came out the way i heard it was i was driving to the hamptons with jessica rosenblum and she said you want to hear the biggie record i was like hell yeah and that was the only song i didn't like well wow. the th my my manager at the time said oh i see what they did and i was like what and he says you know like and he used the brand newbie and i'll make example he says you know how the tried to do me song was supposed to be like that one small attempt 
at getting an R&B hit mm-hmm. on an otherwise hip-hop record? He's like, yeah. He's like, you know that Unbelievable is the try to do me nah, of this. Well, no, no, no. Murder. I mean, in, but no, no, but just in terms of where you had a hip hop record with just the one token R&B attempt. Well, no, no, no. But he, he's basically saying that they reversed the formula and made every song with single potential. Okay. But the one the underground, underground hip hop record, the was one token song wound up being the, the underground record, which was, you know, unbelievable, which, it. you know, it's, it's kind of reversed. But at the time, like I didn't, I guess, I think I knew of Masters of Ceremony. I haven't seen it in the record bins, but. that Ceremony was fire. All I know is that. Cracked Out was fire. Really? Fire. Fire. They were, I mean, they were fire. Pooba was fire back then. But how were you sold on? Like, what was it about the group? You just wanted Pooba and whatever pride, whatever you wanted to do. Also, I was I hung out with Pooba. He was just so cool. I sang out with him and Paz K back then, and they were just mad cool. I just wanted to fuck with both of them. See, why weren't they a crew? They should have been. But because of the first priority situation, yes, Paz said, yeah, they should have been. Yeah, I I felt and, like and, they should have been. And disclaimer on try to do me, that was 100% Grand Poobah's doing. 100%. <laughs> that was him. His man Dave Hall is from Mount yeah, Vernon. Yeah, untouchable. Yeah. That's his man. And da- and he's dope. <laughs> Dave Hall is also, he did uh, a lot Dave of music. Hall. Hall. the Mariah Carey joint. Yeah. yeah. He, was, he was trying to eat. Dave Jam Hall. Dave Jam, Jam Hall, Hall yeah. yep. <laughs> he was trying to eat. Yeah, do me. That was the thing, because then it was, well, the genius, he had come do me. Like, that was the, that was a couple years before that. Did you have a hand in signing the genius? No, no. You uh, RZA was RZA, on top of me, right? Yeah, RZA was on. Yo, RZA. When I went, when I signed Dirty, I, I, I you probably heard the story how I signed Dirty. It's no, a, it's I in don't. Stretching Bobito movie. I um plug plug. Um, <laughs> I uh, I heard I, I was so I was loving Wu Tang. Protect Your Neck was, and um, Maddie C, my man who worked aloud, he told me that. They weren't all signed. Like almost going like grab one of them while you can. Like mm-hmm. do me the do me the rock. So I heard him up on um, Stretch and Bob, and I and I jumped in the cab and I went up there and I walked in and Rizzo was there and and I was like oh shit. He was like yo I know you from the god Mel Quan. I was like yeah I remember you, you used to be on time but it's like yeah you knew me when I was whack. Straight up, <laughs> straight up. Wow. I'll never forget it. That's real. And, and I was talking to those dudes for a while and I was like yo I love I love dirty I love meth come see me. And that was Thursday. They were supposed to see me Friday. They came Monday. Um, and I and I remember they came to my office and and I told Rizzo I want to sign Dirty and Meth. That's a new run DMC. And he told me, yo, that's an ill thought, but now nah, I'm going to put Meth in them over there with Russell, but I'm going to give you Dirty because he fits in with the gods. And I was like, okay. And he, he had it mapped so out. So he had a master up. plan. That's he had dope. it mapped out. He like He wanted to put him there straight up. That's All right, dope. so many questions. Well, wait, <laughs> and and I'll say this too: RZA was like the coolest, smartest, most insightful. Like that guy is like back. I mean, from then to now, he's just like a gracious individual. Like he I is. always, I always just had great vibes with that guy. He is. Wait, since so, since we're on the try to do me. <laughs> All right, so this is the significance of try to do me was that this is was their attempt at. Trying to get on the radio. Right. Didn't get on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that Urban Outfitter love shirts right now with the floppy. uh... (laughs) 
I'll see if Heavy D were on this, it'd be, you know. Right. That's now, what it man. is. It's a Heavy D record. Yeah, I'm saying that when I got this record, I wasn't exactly fast forwarding it. Matter of fact, I did. There was two, <laughs> two fast forward. There was two fast forward. It was when, it, when it, cause, cause there was two. There's um, two. It was, okay, it was this one and um, Dance for My Ministry. Dance for My Ministry. Yeah, uh, no, yeah. I love Dance for My Ministry. Oh, no, no, is, that was a militant. Was that militant? That's cool. No, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Right. I didn't. I didn't fast forward Dance for My Ministry. I used to. I used to run that one. I like it. All I knew was that I read the. Okay, so this is when I knew the source was the Bible. Because when I saw the review, first of all, they got a, a five mic review, and which, they had a song that wasn't on. They had, on that tape. They had a song that didn't make the album. Which, which one? one? Which one? It was a song with this girl Jetta. Said, "Where is Pooba?" And it and the drums for it became what's the four one one. Wow. No, not what's the four one one. It was the Bismarck drums, Lafayette Afro Rock, and oh, and that's why wow. Puff <laughs> was fucking with Pooba back then. Oh. Where is Pooba? I need that song. I, John Schechter has it. And I was like, his, and when the record why came didn't out, he's make like, the record? I have no idea why. Try to do me. There's yeah, several songs he did. <laughs> There's several songs he did that never made the record. Wow. Like there was also the Pete Rock song on his, on his solo album. What? Yeah, you don't know about that song? A Pete Rock song didn't make the- Pooba Maxwell. Yeah, yes, sir, honey. In 94. How you living? It's on, it's on YouTube. And Funky why? Penguin. I have no- let me just say this. There is no explaining the Grand Poobah. <laughs> there is no rhyme or reason. So wait, he had the final say? Weren't you A&R on the records? I mean, I never got the master. They made it in Pete's house on, on Pete's. Pete used to have the A-track cassette in the house. And they made it wow. on that. Wow. And I never, I'd had a cassette. It wait, never made it to tape. So you're saying that, okay, when we get to Pete Rock, you're saying that half that stuff was just made on an A-track? No, I mean, just that was. Pete, oh, but Pete made all his demos like that. And that's why they were so bright. So when he went to Chung King, I mean to Green Street, that's why his records were so bright because he wanted to match what he's doing in the house on the cassette. Chase the demo. demo. Chase, Chase the, the demo. demo. What Bob Power says, Chase the demo. Demo Whitus. Wow. So, all right. So the first line of the source review was Brand Nubian is New York. Mm. And that just. Did Schechter write the review? I don't know if he did, but it just. Because I haven't even heard of him, but the fact that. In the previous source, uh, their summer issue in which, uh, I mean, they gave Tribe, they reviewed a whole bunch of records. And America's Most Wanted got a five. It did? So okay, they, it they, reviewed, it though, that they reviewed like 30 albums. 
And the only fives awarded was People's Instinctive Travels, America's Most Wanted. Ice Cube, Tripod Class. Wait, wait, let's uh, go back. Let's go back. Oh, Is okay. People's Instinctual Travels a five mic record? No. 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 Um, Midnight Marauders at the, at is low end. I think at the time it came out, it, it was it, it was, was just so nah, different from what it nah, came it out. Was. What it was. came nah. out, nah, nah. nah it was not to me. Like it's it's actually my least I favorite. I tried to sign them, but so, nah, it's not well, my nah, least I agree favorite. With you there. I, I it's agree my with least there. favorite tribe album. What about Beach Rhymes and Life and the Love Movement? Let's get real. Beast Rhymes, I, that was an album I didn't know people hated until I got on the right, internet. Right, that I was, was bumping Beast Rhymes of Life. Same. Somebody had to. Oh, here you go, <laughs> man. I bought Shazzy, so hey. I mean, I mean see, I'm saying. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, he killed me. I, and I, I made Shazzy. So, and no disrespect, those records are good records. They're just not, like, they're just not as good as, as Midnight Marauder, Marauders and Low End Theory. You know, because so, their bar was so high, they're competing against themselves. But here's the thing, though, because even on OK Player, they had one of these, like, okay, 25 years later, mm-hmm. how does this hold up? And when it came time for Awful One, people were like, no, this is definitely not a five-mic record. And mm-hmm. I had to def- – my defense was that it was – it was be- Awful One was beyond the music. It was more the lifestyle. I, I would give it – honestly, I wouldn't give it a five-mic. That's a four to a four-and-a-half. There's two, two duds on it. Five-mic <laughs> record has no duds. <laughs> See, he's coming from a technical standpoint, yeah, I and I think, guess yeah. the industry standard has has sort of Stockholm syndrome me to now make the product of the artist more than just the the album right, itself. Right. Yeah, a great America, record doesn't America's have to be a perfect most record. wanted is better than One for All. I can rap with you on that. So is the first Cypress album to me. Uh, you know what? I'll give you that one too. I, wait, are we that. about to have? The, no, no, we ain't going there. We yet to have the because because Midnight Marauders better than One for All too. So is yes. Low End Theory. But it's a matter of significant it's importance. It's all subjective. It's all subjective yeah. The thing no, is, is that you're right. You're right. No, <laughs> you're right. That's just how it is. <laughs> I don't what. think there's a particular song or whatever, but it's just the 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 meaning of All for One. I mean, in one fell swoop. I mean, even, all right, take it this way. Even a record like New York, New York by the Dog Pound. Mm-hmm. Right. And in the first 20 seconds of them mocking what they think New York is, yep. their first reference is, yo, what's up, God? True indeed, mm-hmm. God. Yo, peace, God. Like, making fun of 5% rappers. I I think Brand Nubian's image and, and, and aura was more important than all for one. I get it. Nah, you're right. It, it's a capsule. It's a, it's a, you're like, it's a capsule picture of New York at that time period, the gods and earths. Mm-hmm. And, well, wait, and it, I got to ask you, how as did. As a white guy? Yeah, I'm like, that was my question. I have, <laughs> I have Jewish white guy. Yeah, I'm about to say, yeah, oh, yeah, that's yeah, the question. That was the question. I'm like, how did you, because I remember, because I mean, I think what you're saying is true for me, because I, I came up in the South, so I'm in North Carolina. So for me, all for one was the first album that I remember really hearing and seeing, you know, the the gods and earth and the five percent terminology and like, okay, well, what is that? And I remember the wake up video where they had like the white man as the devil and shit. Like Fat Five Freddy did that video. Oh, okay. And it got banned from MTV. It did. It did. Got Just banned. Think about that. <laughs> think about that. His yeah. own show. His own show banned. It. <laughs> His own show His own banned show. this video. But I, but that, well, yeah, it was, it was just learning the terminology and all that. I mean, that was my first. Yeah, I was introduction like, what's, you know, what's crazy is that I did the so the remix version, Wake Up's original version, and they did that other version second, and 
That version do, was actually do, do, better. Do, do, do. Yeah, the Roy Ayers joint. Do, do, do. Yeah. That one was way better. Oh, you were the... Da, 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 the Nightlighters. The Nightlighters. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, okay. so um, my version's really the original version, but they wanted to run with that one, and there was no arguing with the gods. And, and the one thing I'll say about their version of that song, it did not knock in a club. Didn't hit. It was it was thin. All right, their mixes. Oh, wow. How? <laughs> man, De La mixes on the first album, too, man. How do you, I mean, but again, it's like, do you mess with their progress? Or do you, Not really. Because they would just loop shit and put 808 under it. That's it. And it wasn't until Pete Rock, which I had actual definition mm. of, well, oh, let me blow up my snare. Let me, no, but even then, like, Jungle Brothers and Tribe would just. I don't know, man. JB's coming through. is knocking. That was, but I mean, a song Straight like out the jungle. But a song like nah, "Feeling that All Right," like it was done in your house. <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying a song like "Feeling All Right" was <laughs> just yeah. But yeah. Then, but then when it got to like the second, I mean, date rape and all those records on Low End Theory, those things are knocking. Well, because Bob was there, but True. you know, I mean, after I mean, Pete Rock shut him down, even everything listen, changed. But even but, listening to to Public Enemy, like I listened to him recently, there's no bottom. It's all mid range. Yeah, like, all mid. No definition, zero definition in their mixes. That's what I'm saying. Like your your era of 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 hip hop was redefined. I guess we now we got to have a Pete Rock section. All right, let's <laughs> let's play <laughs> some. Let's say one thing though about about Brand Nubian. So Brand Nubian was a snapshot of New York at that time period, much like Cypress Hill was a snapshot of L.A. at that time period. There are certain records that capture a certain place. Too short, born the Mac. They capture that place that that vibe of that city at that time period. And that's why those records are all important. Very different records, but all kind of have the same cultural importance to me. All right. So wait, let's, let's peep uh, one of my all time favorites from uh, all for one step to the rear. Mm. I got to know where this sample, which one? The whoa, end. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sesame sound... street record. No. Yes. It's wow. Bert, Bert, Bert and Ernie singing. No. Yep. Full circle. Ah, here we go. Okay. Step to the rear, Grandpa was on arrival. Raised in the ghetto, singing songs called survival. Running around town, giving all the girls poober snacks. I wouldn't try to steal a style, you just might get some cardio. Figured the way to get paid is to grab the mic rehearsal. Smooth as Jermaine, so honey, don't take it personal. There's no need in trying to diss the swinger. Baby, all you catch is two snaps up in the finger. The barbaloo bad boy, a threat to the paranoia. You try to step to this, it's void. A new hit from the grandman, work nights like the sandman. Game for a worker, case I gotta stomp a head out. Plus, it is a trick that's not up my sleeve is possessed with finesse and it works when I breathe. Paid in the shade with the A as the grade with the papes that I made from this trade. So get hip to the grip, you know where to slide the chips if you want to cash in on the wins. Grand Puba and I love to hit skins. And you know what? I've got a song to sing. I've got a song to sing. Here we go. I've got a song to sing. I've got a song to sing. Follow me now. Dog, I used to make pause tapes to... Okay, a pause tape was before looping culture with Serato and, and and other devices today. When you wanted to hear your favorite part, you would just take a cassette tape and do the edits yourself by hand. So I would just make 
of just this section of the song, <laughs> trying to figure out. I I cannot leave this earth without owning the source of the record of the sample. I have the record. I know what the cover looks like, but I don't know what the name of the song is. It's a long <sighs> time ago, and it's definitely a Sesame Street record that KMD was fucking with too. I'm sure we can find it. Well, yeah, I was about to say <laughs> yeah, our yeah, next episode of Quest Love Supreme <laughs> will be at Unpaid Bill's job. <laughs> <laughs> Just let me come. I need to get some of those you records. Come. <laughs> All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So, Pete Rock. Oh, love him. (laughs) Just... Easiest guy to work with of all time. Really? Oh, man. He was so, man, it was like making that record was so easy. I'd just go to the studio like every couple of days and they'd be finishing another record. About a record you're talking about Mecca the first one, Megan and Soul Brothers. Okay. So, so even when he did the EP, which which he didn't, that's, I wasn't really around a whole lot with that one. Um, but, the set, you know, because we had the creator, we had a hit song, right? So we knew we had a hit. So we're making an album and I would just cruise by Green Street and uh, we'd smoke a little weed. And then uh, we ordered some food, and he pl- he also had like twenty five songs, thirty songs, like so- a bunch of records didn't go on the album, wow. and and he would just play me shit, and I'd be like, yo, what is that? And he'd be like, oh, uh, you know, that's Isley Brothers, taking inventory, whatever. He'd tell me what the record was, so I catch knowledge. He uh, filtered the baseline. Oh yeah, I use these drums. Like it was not only was it a pleasure to hear the records, it was like I was going to beat school. He was. He knew a lot. He, he knew played more it in than his me. car. What was that he would play these beats in yeah. his car? Yeah, yeah. 
played in the car, and then and Jamie Stahl was the engineer, and and I ended up stealing Jamie to do Everlast later, because um, I thought his mixes sounded so good, and and Green Street was just a really nice environment. So, and and Pete never beefed about anything ever. He never beefed once. Never had a complaint. It was like he was really, he was really, he was really young then. It's a long time ago. It's a long time ago. Are we talking about the same people? <laughs> right. I know. Because wait. He was quiet back then. As a record digger, there is no fear like the look on a record merchant's face when he might have to face the wrath of Pete Rock if right. Pete is if Pete finds out that someone else has purchased uh, a record that Pete was intending on using. Another thing about Pete is when you shop with him, he didn't really show you a lot of shit. Where, like, I would shop with the Beat Nuts and be like, you know this? Even Dilla, I went shopping with him one time, he showed me some shit. But, like, Pete would, would never say anything. I'd be like, yo, you know this? And he'd do the beat, but he knew about it. Wouldn't tell you anything. Dog, I, I, it would be to the point where, like... He put me up on a T-Swift. He put me up on a few joints. Eddie Sine, a couple of joints. Oh, okay, okay. For a second, when you said T Swift, I was like, "Wait a minute, huh? Yeah. Wasn't she like three years old back then?" No, I'm playing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm playing Taylor. That took me a second. No, no. I'm no, just you saying. Know the record? Are you the Jimi Hendrix? Yeah. Are you experienced joint the drums? But I'm saying that he. Yeah, I, I I would go to places and I'd be like, "All right, we're we're the good record titan," and they'd just be like, I, "You know," uh, I said, "What, Pete?" It's like, "Yeah, you know." And then it'd be a time where, like, maybe a month or two would go by and be like, did Pete pick up the records yet? And he'd be like, well. And then that's how I would I'd be like, here, I need these records. Yo, Mir, I went to his house one time in Spring Valley, and he let me look at his record collection. And every record I had, he had doubles of damn near. And he had everything to the point where I wanted to give up. I was like, God damn it. He, he would he everything. Would, he would notoriously actually buy triples and quadruples of so records, no one else could get so that no one else yeah. could get the records. But he gave me some records too. He, I traded doubles with him a couple of times. He, uh, you know, also, also, you know, I helped him out a lot. So, you know, but he was a pleasure to deal with, man. And I always hear people like, you know, he may get a difficult tag now and again, <laughs> but but uh, he was really cool back then. And he didn't smoke a lot. And I was a mad pothead, and I started getting him high a lot. He was, going, he was like, you got that? We started smoking. Spring, and, you told him about Spring Valley, New York, yeah, Rockland that's where County? He used to live. Yeah, that's where he lived. That's where he had his first house. And and I don't know if you guys know this, that Puba wrote The Creator. Um, he wrote it for beats. He didn't get paid. And he also wrote, um, he wrote, um, um, What's the other one? Pete's rocking on it. He's rapping. Oh, Soul Brother Number One. Soul Brother Number One. Oh, Wait, can wow. we play that real quick? Yeah, that song is great. Boss Bill looking at me like, you better play that song. He's a sweet soul brother. Soul brother number one, here I come on the new tip. That's the coated right, cause I'm rich, thick, and chocolate. Plug up any mic, I bet you beat rock a sprocket. Huns always ask, what's the bulge in my pocket? I tell them papers. I rock from top to bottom, never hesitate to say, I rest on the hillside, over on the chill side, uptown. So let's get down. 
Funky is the word describe his brother on his soul mission. Hook and rugged joints, more soul than the soul kitchen. See, I was a scrap, so I won't leave you itching. White people even say Pete Rock is bitching. Harder than the hardest, harder than the artist. I guess that's just because I'm smarter than the smartest. So back up, clear the path, honey, cause here I come. Soul brother number one. All right, so I just realized that the number one soul brother uh, sample. Sweet, sweet bag. No, it's Uh-oh, it's d- Merv d- Griffin d- introducing James Brown. It is? Okay, so there's a copy. There's a song called World that James Brown did, and it's, it's Merv Griffin introducing. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's the number one soul brother. James Brown. And then oh, it goes okay. so like James has a perfectly edited introduction of Merv Griffin from the Merv Griffin show before the world song starts. Crazy. There's a lot of samples in it. There's bubblegum in that, long red. So more importantly, pain. Yeah, yeah, that that's my favorite song on that record because you got the ninth creation in there on the bottom. Yeah. So by this point, um, how do you clear these samples? Like, if it's super obvious, or do you, or is it favorite nation? A lot nations? of dice rolling. <laughs> do Roll people come to you? Do people come to you and you're like, hey, I was holding your money in escrow? Like, no, 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 no. I would sit there with Pete and I'd be like, yo, you, I know you use this, this, and this. He might divulge another one. He might not. So I didn't catch. And we didn't catch everything. We definitely didn't clear everything on those records. Like, without a and doubt. And what about the interludes? Just, oh, man, we didn't clear hardly any of those. <sighs> We Those were the I'm days. Sure, I'm sure oh there's gosh. been, you know, everyone knows everything now, so I'm sure he's he's had suit after suit. Well, I'll tell you what's crazy. Step to the rear, Electra Records cleared Tramp by Lowell Folsomon. It's not Tramp. And they did that retroactively. Wow. And I'd already had a publishing deal, and they were like, hey, there's a claim against one of your songs. I was like, that's not what that sample is. Because it's, it's uh, you know, it's the marquees. Uh, even on Beats, Rhymes, and Life, uh, they gave a good chunk of the portion of uh pad and pin uh-huh to the gap band really for what for just a little just piece a minuscule from yearning for you yeah just a little, oh, that little wow. snippet but you know you, you, and i'm like yeah this is like 30 percent and i'm like why'd you even clear it like I, that, that dude who owns their publisher you know he goes after everybody he's trying to catch dudes have you I don't even want to yeah, bring caught. this into existence. <laughs> have you have you what had you a have you had an Aaron Fuchs uh, situation? Nah, nah. I got caught for Camille Yarborough on the Everlast record. She caught me. She caught me. She. I had to pay her some dough. She um, did the the Fat Boy Slim. Yeah, the crazy, crazy yeah, yeah. Same shit. And I just oh. used, I used the interlude just a little. No, it wasn't. Sorry, not Camille Yarborough. My bad. Avon Gray, the Gray Lady album. I used a little interlude. Um, it's a whole new thing. Like I used just a little vocal and I didn't clear it. And we settled with it. It was cool. No big deal, and and I did roll the dice on. I'm not going to down myself out on on a bunch of on several records that are big records that I didn't clear things on. I never got caught. Knock on wood. Good. Wow. There's someone's going to hear this and go through my entire catalog. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably already up on who sampled already. Right. So it's not. It's kind of, oh really? Nope. Wow, and, I, and on rock records, people don't look as much. So because I did all these remixes uh-huh. for porn and shit, right, and I, right. I used mad shit that people didn't catch. What'd you say? John Spencer Blues Explosion and all that? I mean, I didn't clear any of that. And, you know, there's something real prominent in that one. So go sue John. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I, I didn't have no publishing. 
So I'm just touring with those guys. Like they, uh, we went on the Beastie Boys tour with John Spencer Blues Explosion. They're in Orange, and, right? When they had yes, the Orange, that's and that when they were banging. They were a great band. Old Russell Simmons on he, drums. He, man, that guy, he hits hard. Yeah, he would go through like a drum head a night. I mean, I recorded him, and and his his time wasn't tremendous. Chuck Treese had better time. They played on. They both played on a record for me. Okay. And Chuck's stuff, I didn't have to play with. I had to play with with Russell's stuff a bunch. Wow, you know about the legend of Chuck Treese? That's my man. I used to skateboard with him. Nick Rad. Yeah, Chuck Chuck Treese Shout is out, forever nineteen year olds. Yeah, that's, that's my man with the, with the green eyes. Yeah, that's yeah, the man, dude. So, how long was your tenure at Electra? I think it was almost eight years, seven years. I think it was a long time, close to eight years. Now, uh, who am I missing besides KMD, Old Dirty Bastard? Um, I gave Buster a solo record. I wasn't there by the time he finished it, um, but but after Leaders flopped, and and even while when they and turned Leaders the in, first album the first or the second album, yeah, which second one? album, second first album was a hit. Well, yeah, I was about to say like. Uh... The second album was very disjointed. I'd send them back in to do it again. They didn't want to do it. When I wanted to go do the second album, I, I actually pulled Tip in. I said, yo, you should be the executive producer and just oversee it because there's too many moving parts. It's chaos. And Tip was down, and I pitched the idea to those guys. And Buster wanted to do it, and the rest of them didn't. And um, that's when I knew that Buster was— Why would they go against their own interests? Because they said, yo, Tribe stole the East Coast Stomp from us. <laughs> and, and, and it wasn't Buster who said that. I'm just going to, I'm not. Of Charlie course, Brown. of course, of course. <laughs> hey, you know, someone who is associated who, who with the, is the <laughs> <laughs> Who's the hardest group to babysit? Leaders of the new school. Because they, they might get in a fist fight in the middle of everything. It was always, always rough with them. Brand Nubians were like, they might beat me up, but not each other. Right? I was about to say, <laughs> each, each group has a fist fight in the A&R office story. Um, Even Tariq and I had a fist fight in the A and R office. Oh, Grand Nubian never had. I never had drama with them like that. Me and Jamar jawed at each other one time, and and that was that. And and uh, Jamar Jamar was definitely down to hook off on me too, and and it didn't happen. So so and and I love Lord Jamar like much respect to him. He's about his business. I love that guy. Right. Um. And and leaders. Yeah. I, I got into with Charlie Brown one time in office, and and just it was all fucked up. And I knew Buster was a star. Everyone knew it. So. Me and Chris Lighty, um, I, I told him, I said, yo, we, Buster got to do solo record. And he's like, you're right. And we worked on Buster for a minute, and Buster finally saw the light, and he did a solo record. And, and um, So and do we, most acts just break up, or do you have to say, okay, we're dropping? No, nah, they all broke up. Every act broke up. It was never me. I never had anything to do with breaking up any act specifically. I did offer a solo record to Buster while they were still a band. That is true. But it was me and Chris Lighty, and... Um, and, and you know, big shout out to Chris Lighty, my brother. I love mm-hmm. him. I miss him. Um, he was the one of the greatest people I ever know from this business, him and D-Nice, sitting in a place that very few other people sit in. But, um, but that said, um, and, and Buster, you know, finally opened his eyes. He seen it wasn't going to happen, and it was time for him to do what he had to do, and he did it. And, and at that point in my life, me and Buster were super close. He was going through a lot of personal shit, and um, that's my, my little brother. I love him. He's a great man. Were you there for the whole... Uh Black bastard scenario with KMD. I was. I was. That was what. That was really what disillusioned me about working at a major label, and I'd probably be. Cynical. So that was the straw that broke the camel's I back. I mean, I've been cynical. No, I, I stayed because it's hard to walk away from that much money, especially you know my mom's a school teacher, my dad's a writer. Like I grew up, you know, very blue collar. So, so I can't say that I'm super Mister Principal. Then I walked away because this, that, and the other. I didn't. Um, but, but I, but I was. I fought tooth and nail. 
um, and you know, I lost. To explain the backstory. So Black Bastards. Um, so you well, know, you got to explain KMD. Right. I so mean, KMD is was was Doom and his brother Subrock and Onyx, who was like he was like the third guy, but he wasn't really in the process. And I met them from third base. They were on Gas Face. Um, he helped produce Gas Face Doom. Um, he was my little homie, my man, and we went and made the first record. We made it in my studio, basically. Who did Peach Fuzz? Um, who, he did Peach Fuzz. Him or Subrock. I mean, it's See, hard to so, I thought did Pooba what? did it because no, no Pooba was playing. No, no way. <laughs> you remember the video when Pooba was playing uh, the yeah, vibraphones? Yeah, yeah, nah. Pooba, we all thought, oh, my God, Pooba knows how to play percussion. Pooba did, uh, he might help with Nitty Gritty, though. Um, okay. But, but those guys, you know, they... Those two were symbiotic in their relationship, rest in peace with Subrock, and and they were just like family to me. And we made the first record, and it it wasn't a big hit, but it, it had some 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 lasting impact. And their imagery was always based around the Sambo character, about eradicating the the stereotype of Sambo. They were Muslims. They were part of the Ansar Allah community, um, Brooklyn. Followed doc, you know Dr. York, blah blah blah. And um, so, so that said, um. <laughs> You know, between the first and second record, they had changed a lot as people. They'd grown a lot. They experimented a lot of mind-altering drugs. You know, they're not ashamed to say it. I think Acid became a, you know, a part of the program, blah, blah, blah. They were hanging out uptown with Curious George and them a lot. And, and Subrock died. He got hit by a car, um, and, mm. and he passed. We buried him, and, and in the wake of that, Doom went and finished the record. He turned in. It was called Black Bastards. It was the hangman game. And they had Sambo, and they were hanging him. Mm-hmm. And uh, Havelock Nelson... Terry Rossi, I'm gonna call him out. I don't care. My Facebook friend, Half Life Nelson, <laughs> and I talked to him about it. Was and, part and, of this. And anything I'm gonna say right now, I'll say I said to him, and he's apologized. Um, they condemned the artwork and the band and the label putting it out without ever giving an audience to Doom to defend his rhetoric, his his vision, and they never let him talk about what it, what his messaging was. And I think I think that was uh So what did they see when they saw they that? They said it cover? was racist that no a major label can't put out a record with Sambo on the cover that's called Black Bastards. Without they, even knowing who was behind it? And and not right. And and not also noting that Sambo's getting hung, right? So they're right. hanging in effigy the stereotype the, of the Sambo. Image, right. And and they always use Sambo with the line through it. Yet they did not give him a chance to defend his vision and his messaging. And and they condemned him. And Terry Rossi wrote about it in her column, and so did Havelock, and it circulated around my building where I worked, and it was post the 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 body count fiasco. Oh right. wow! Was Havelock so, in Billboard? Yes, because I remember that. Like yes. I religiously read Billboard yes. every week, and remember he that being on Nelson page three. George. So, right. so uh, okay. the rhythm and blues column, I think it was called. So okay. So they circulated. My boss called my office, and he said. There's a lot of uh, contentious feelings about this artwork, and and we're gonna put this before the, re- the review board at, uh, you know, at Warners. WMG, and we're gonna see, <laughs> you know, what people said. And he said that Vincent Davis, who had Keith Sweat, found this offensive, and Sylvia Rome finds this offensive, and it's been deemed offensive by several black so people. All the bourgeois were all blacks. Blues, right. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. We said it for you, brother. Thank you. All Thank the you. bourgeois blacks. Certain things I can't say. The so. educated blacks. So, all, all the Jack and Jill black folks. So, you know, um, <laughs> so they wouldn't let the record come. They, they shelved the record, but my man came 
to the office the day we were going to meet the Warner Music Group. Uh, what's the guy? Richard Parsons was supposed to be there and various other people. Dick Parsons. Dick man. Parsons. And wow. we were going to meet all these people. And, and my boss said, they, they've canceled the meeting. We're not going to have the meeting. I'm not going to put the record out. Bob Krasnow. And he said, but I am going to give you back your master's. And I know you've been through a lot of stuff with your brother. And I'm going to also give you basically a, like, get out of jail free check. So he uh, gave him, a, I think it was $20,000 check. And we went to my office. And I had all this wine. Someone sent me a case of wine. Sweet premium wine. Right? They have that song, Sweet Premium Wine. Right. So we always used to drink the wine in my office. And and we drank a couple of bottles. And and Doom said, you know, I should get dropped more often. I haven't got a $20,000 check in my entire life. <laughs> and and That's real. the fallout is that no one would touch the record. Faith Newman, I know, wanted to sign them. And they wouldn't, she wasn't allowed to. And the record sat there and Doom went in and uh, he put on, you know, he put on the, the, the mask and he reinvented himself as MF Doom. And uh, power to him, man. That's the power of, of black man in America right there. Reinvention, right? Which is crazy because... So he invented underground hip-hop more or less on the heels of catching the biggest L of his life, his brother dying and getting dropped. But you know what? He empowered himself. And, and I love that man. That's my brother forever. And, you know, he, he was... Uh, we had a, a lot of stuff, man. I, I'll never forget burying his brother. Or, or, you know, every time I see him, I'm one of the only people who talks to him on Skype and I have to tell him to take the mask off. <laughs> um, but, but I love that cat. And, and he's, a, he's a wonderful person. And, and you know, that's, that's the rap game, right? There it is. You know, you got to deal with some bullshit. Because I was feeling the, the single, what was the single that sampled the, the Jody Watley loop? What a nigga you know? Ooh, what a nigga you know. That shit was hot. That was my was shit. Murder. I knew that shit was going to hit. And know the ledge jacked him, right? You're right. They jacked the loop. You're right. Rashad. You're right. Jacked it. He knew uh, what it was. He was around. I love you, Rashad. You play that? You know what's up. It's your boy Rashad. Rashad. You know what's up. Jacked it. You know what it is. You've been knowing to jack the loops. Him and T-Ray. A couple <laughs> other cats. Yo, Rashad and Steve. Yo, it was Rashad, Rashad Smith. Rashad, Rashad. Tumble and Dice Tumble and Dice, yeah. I cannot wait to get Tumble and Dice on Questlove well, we Supreme. Call him, but I love he him. He's my man. Number. Rashad. Probably because you stole someone's loot. Got to change the number. It gets turned off. Am I allowed to, to call Rashad number. Smith? <laughs> Ringo. I'm telling you, he's going to have well. a new Might number well. since you called him last. Wow, I actually have... Rashad Smith, number seven. I have like seven phone numbers on him. Damn. I, got a, I got a bunch myself. He's All a talented right. cat, though, man. He did doing it. People don't know that. Yep. He's a cat who did more records that people don't know he did than anyone ever. Oh, yeah. He did One More Chance. Yep. See, he did Know the Ledge. He did Can Relax with Pep. Mm-hmm. Paul C. might have done more records Hello? than people ain't know. Hello, man. Please speak to Rashad. Hello? Rashad. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, no, you got the wrong number. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> Just think about that. How stupid is this, though? How stupid is the idea of stealing a loop? Because we were stealing them from the guys who made the records. Yeah. So it's like, you know, uh, whatever. That's crazy. Uh, all right. So you're saying, so the last record that you A&R'd at Electra was Black Bastards? Nope. What was oh, it? Was dirty, dirty right? It was dirty. Yeah, it was first. Uh, N- yep. Dirty and the second Pete Rock. I, chronologically, I can't remember. Main ingredient. Came. Okay. Main ingredient. But no, Dirty came out in 95, so. So maybe it's that one. Dude, how do you even. How do was you that even. Rashad Smith? <laughs> <laughs> it might have been. How do you even communicate 
with old dirty bastard. Um, man, how? So, so, who put that record together? So they came to me with seven, maybe eight, anywhere from six to eight songs done. The rest of the music was basically on reels on two inches. A lot of the vocals were already done, not all of them. And RZA was like, peace. And RZA, he wasn't going to babysit Dirty. He had money to go get, and he went and got his money. And he left Dirty in my lap. I had to figure out with an engineer how to mix those records. And if you've ever had a multi from RZA... I haven't. His science is not my science. (laughs) His periodic table is very Staten Island. And I'm from Manhattan. I had trouble understanding it. And he would literally take the bass tone from the two-inch reel, from the two-inch machine, and and play bass lines out of that. And I didn't know what the hell he was doing. And and I I did struggle, but but I got the mixes done eventually, and he okayed them all. It took a year to get the record made. Um, But in that year... The, the Wu-Tang Clan, because I signed him before his album came out, had grown in leaps and bounds. So I knew I had to get to the finish line. Um, and I had a very patient woman I lived with at the time. And I spent an, inor- an inordinate amount of time in trying to finish that record. But I also knew that because the way Dirty lived his life. Um, How many 5 a.m. phone calls you get? Man. From studios. Man. <laughs> man. Tell me one, man. Tell man, me one. There's so much shit he did, man. But, 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 man, I walked in the studio one time. This is the best. And my partner, John Gamble, one of SD50s, who didn't engineer a lot of sessions, was engineering the session. And I called earlier. I said, yo, is Dirty there? Yeah, Dirty's here. I'm, I'm going to swing by in a while. And I swing over there a couple hours later, Chunking. And I walked in and no one's there. And I said, and my man had a weird look on his face. I said, where's Dirty? He's like, he's here. I was like, where? He's like, he's in the vocal booth. I said, why the lights out? He said, go in there and see. Oh, oh Lord. I walked in there, and they're running a train on this chick. Wow. Oh. Dead ass. Dead ass. <laughs> and, and, and I I walked in, and Dirty wasn't. It, Dirty, I guess, had already had, already had his ride. <laughs> and and he, at, he was like, yo, D, you want to get down? I said, nah, man, I don't ride caboose. <laughs> yeah, and and yeah. those guys said that to me for like six months straight. Yo, you ride caboose yet? <laughs> and that was like their favorite thing to say to me. And, and that was like one of the thousands of. I mean, you know, he fucking took the LL plaque off the wall and pissed on it. I'm not, I mean, <laughs> I'm saving that for my book. But needless to say, I was in between him and Chris Lighty about the. It was a Mexican standoff, and and it was fuck. It was yo and dirty. Just like you know, I took him to LA and he did this show, and he. I mean, he tore it down, walked Literally. right off stage, and started to do another show in front on like a street lamp, and like just stood there in front of the Palladium on Highland and started rocking again. And I had to drag him to the hotel. It was like it, it, he was so wild, and his diet was the he would eat a box of donuts every day for breakfast. Oh my god! Chocolate donuts, and then drink Cisco. He was, un- he was un- and he would fart and laugh. And I mean, he just, everything he did was larger than life. He got kicked out of so many hotels. And I will say this though. I knew I had to get it to the finish line because there are times in life when it, you only know you have that moment in time and you got to get there. Mm-hmm. Right. And I had to get there because I, I, I strongly you knew. suspected it never going to happen again. You knew. Let me get it while I can. Mm-hmm. And I, and I dedicated a large part of that year to getting that record made, and and I, we got it made. 
and and True Master and Dirty got in a fist fight at the mastering session. And if you look at the record, it says master by Tom the referee coin. Because Tom <laughs> Coin got oh, wow. up, got up and he he broke up the fight and he ended the mastering session and told me to come back the next day without it. All the clients. And I'm Bill. Has so we were mastering the Hamilton record, and he told us this exact story. Yo, Tom Coyne is a G. Tom Coyne is. He's a G. Yeah, yes, he is. Yeah, I love that man. I know he him for a long time. He had on his boat shoes, ready to go golfing. And yeah, he's always. Telling us about he's that. the least yeah. hip hop dude who mastered the most hip hop record. Oh hell yeah, unbelievable. He Yo, should Tom, be on the show too. Tom Coyne's he's story Ill. of he's the Tom Coyne told me a story of how when he mastered uh, only built for Cuban links. Mm-hmm. Uh, they stopped at Mint Master and said, yo, we got to put some some uh, killer uh, interludes on here from the movie The Killer. The Killer, right. But <laughs> oh, yeah. none of them had, uh, you know, the technology wasn't out back then to go on the internet. So they're just like, wait, I'll be right back. I'm going to run to the alley and get my killer tape. And Tom Coyne's like, well, he's like, they left for four hours, came back, got the killer tape, but there's no uh, television to watch it. So they just oh, had a VCR God. with no TV. They hook it up, and they start acting out the entire movie. They literally act out That's the entire wild. movie. Tom Coyne recorded it. He's like, all right, what part do we use? He's like, oh, wait, start again from the top. Oh, so my then, God. <laughs> wow. So then he's like, all right, I'm going to take notes. And after a while, they drifted off, stopped taking notes, and was like, yo, it's the illest scene, God, da 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 And then they got to the end, and Tom Coyne's like, okay, you, you guys uh, have your notes? He's like, ah, oh, man, I, damn. <laughs> Play it one more time. He he had to play the killer three times in a row. P Rock showed up, did the interludes on the main ingredient with his twelve hundred, and did them in the studio. Really, right out of it, right to mastering, right there, laid it right there. That incredible Hulk joint. Yeah, that, he did that right there. Ah, he said, "Yo, I gotta add this." Tom Coyne came out, look like you again. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Coyne, man, he's Does a master of patience. I've yeah, I've and seen he did so many of my records, and he was always my dude. I've I've seen uh, old dirty uh, uh, Pro Tools, and it's a mystery on how that just to hear it in its naked form, especially with his vocals. There's at least eight or nine tracks. You can where, hear the punches. I mean, on the record, yeah. like you can hear them, like totally. I mean, on all the Wu Tang. Like, there's like a that. Brooklyn Zoo where, and I'm trying to figure out. How did you cut? How did y'all cut and paste this record so together? So shimmy shimmy, I tried to get him to do a second verse for months. Mm-hmm. He would not do it. <laughs> he he was did like, the backwards thing. He did it backwards, and I walked in the studio and said, "Yo, I did shimmy shimmy," and he played it, and I was like, "You motherfucker!" <laughs> and then he was like, "Yo, Q-Tip did it." I was like, "Oh my god!" He's like, "Yeah." I was like, "That's not oh my god." He's like, "Whatever, my shit's gonna knock." <laughs> he was wow, right. He was right. Yeah, he's right as fuck. Let me tell you something. Those records, like, they still hold up. And and there's a real... Oh, also, Brooklyn Zoo. I So drums, I couldn't get the drum sounding right. And I chopped up the Brethren and I put the kick and snare in there. And Rizzo never knew. He's, he oh, never you went knew. and beefed it up? Yeah, I just put the kick and snare in there because I couldn't get the drums to sound right. So if you listen to it close, you clearly hear the Brethren snare in there. <laughs> oh, boy. The Brethren, which, you know, it's been in hundreds of records I made. So why did you... After that record, then why did you leave Electra? Um, Sylvia Rowan was my boss, and 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 I don't think she necessarily liked me. Um, I can't <laughs> say that she was a fan of Dante Ross, and, and you know what? I can't blame her. Um, she wasn't a fan but, of me either. I was. I was. Wow. You, know, you worked I was, at Electra, boss. I worked at, at Motown. I was. Um, uh-huh. 
I, knew I was it. wild style, you know. You couldn't tell me a lot, and, and you know, I was just living a crazy life. And, and she didn't care about your reputation or your legacy. Nah, she didn't care about that. She she probably wanted like I, she might have wanted to just get me out to own my legacy because if because I signed Missy too, and Buster oh. will tell you that. So I did a deal with Devonte Swing, and she hated that deal. So she dropped Missy when she was in Sister and signed her again. But but I had signed her the first time. And she was like, this wow. deal is bullshit. You know, what do you know about R&B? And she would really, like, talk. She was very belittling to me in meetings and Wait a minute. And how, all that. How does, how does she negate your deal for the label, but then restructure the deal for the label? Like, I mean, she did. But wouldn't she drop bringing Missy to the to so the she table. got she she didn't she sign Missy sisters, right away. It took a year, took a year later group, too. Yeah. Right. Okay. But, but that okay. said, and Missy was like, "Yo, you, I know you're the person who really signed me." She always told me that, and and it was just like a and Buster will tell you that too. It was just a bugged out period, and and so we were making a second Dell record. And she wanted him to work with Jermaine Dupree and Wow on the second and it was just one, well, obviously no need for alarm no oh, need for alarm it was bad vibes obviously this is the, this, this the is puff period it about, was so. bad vibes and she wasn't feeling me and and you know yeah, I tried to hold my tongue but I'm not good at that and so and obviously she, puff and Chris Lighty just... so Chris Lighty was like yo she's not feeling you one day we went to dinner and I was like you're right he's like come work over at Def Jam. So I took, I got a deal over at Def Jam for an astronomical amount of money, and Def Jam went G Funk, and they didn't give a fuck about me. I signed Trigger the Gambler, and that was it. Wow! That was the only thing I ever signed. I helped on the Nutty Professor. I was miserable, but paid, paid, <laughs> and I linked up with Everlast, and we made Whitey Ford sings the blues on Def Jam's done. Def Jam was paying me, and I never went to work, and I went to California. I moved to L.A. and made the record with, with Everlast and, and sold a lot of records. And That was we, one of the most surprising and comebacks. Leo oh, wouldn't yeah. talk to me for like a year over there. She's like, I hate you. You <laughs> gave Tom Silverman the biggest record. I gave you $850,000. You gave me nothing. Wow. And I was like, you were from Warren G. Land, man. You were fucking with the South Central Cartel. I had yeah, that yeah, he did. Yeah, that, and and yeah. I'll tell you, I was so disgusted with rap music at that point in my life. Like, I was so disgusted by where it was that I was listening to Radiohead and Massive Attack and mm. DJ Shadow and, you know, whatever, Oasis and, and all kinds of rock music. I grew up, you know, like, I was a teenage punk rocker, so I had an affinity for that stuff. I played drums a little bit. And I just, like, you know, we were our, our minds were in different places. I was listening to Soundgarden. I wasn't really, like, I wasn't juiced on where hip-hop was. I didn't like Foxy Brown, straight up. And the Puff stuff, I liked it when I was in the club, but I didn't I didn't care for Listen it. Listen to it in, in your house. Yeah, yeah. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't go It wasn't home. lifestyle. It wasn't right. live it, with it. Yeah. it. It didn't speak the culture to me at that time. It spoke another culture. And hats off to Puff, respect. And I, I like those records a lot more in retrospect now. But when they were out, I liked them in the club when I'm trying to dance with the chick, but I didn't want to live those records. So, you know, I wanted to do something else. Wow. I, follow, I followed my heart. Did you have anything to do with the Everlast solo record that came out in 95 before the Whitey Ford? No, no but I knew him. We, I met him with De La. The, um, but it didn't come out in 95. Nah, that was the that. one. That was the... The Knack. I got the, the Knack. I got the Knack and Syndicate was like, Soldier. No, 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 no. I'm talking about there was... It was Guru Everlast and they were oh, rhyming over the, the, the Bitches joint. Brew. The, 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 um, the, the Gangstar joint. Oh, Fed Up. Fed Up, yeah, but the... Oh, I f- but the remixes, she played a remix. 
The remix is the joint with the with the Jean Jacques Perry. Hey, what's that sound? Don't turn around till you're back. I got the tray pound hard for you chumps that act hard. The ones faking jacks packing guns acting hard. Wow, to see Guru dancing in his videos, hilarious. <laughs> I, so what I got, year was that? What so year, that what video year is right that? there. Do you know who Peter Green is the actor? He he. Okay, she really Pulp Fiction, right? Yes. Remember Zed? Zed kills me in that video. Wow. <laughs> so so needless to say, um I was in LA with Sadat. Before I worked with Everlast, I got I managed Sadat. I can't manage a fucking shoelace, but but I managed Sadat and and I got him signed allowed we did the Wild Cowboys. We were in LA on on tour or something, and a guru came and he hung out with us, got drunk. He was in a hotel at the Mondrian and and he was like, um, yo, you know my man Everlast? I was like, yeah, I know him a little bit. He's cool. And he's like, he's going to come meet me. And then he was like, y'all two motherfuckers are like the same dude. You need to hang out. And I was like, word. And and what I didn't tell him was that Muggs and them, and Eric knew this, they never wanted us to hang out together because we were both real wild back then. And, and the chances of someone getting arrested were pretty high. <laughs> um, so, so me and him, though, we linked up. And then Sadat did the record for, with him for that album. You feel uh, like, was that the Heart Full of Sorrow? Yeah. I love that, that record. That was a hot record. Man, and I, I went out record. there with them when they did it. And we just linked. We went to the Super Bowl together. And it was like I met my twin brother. I was like, oh, he's just like me. And then we stayed tight. And we ended up doing that record. So so I have a question. Um, how did... How did the uh, the I guess the genre switch happen for Everlast? Like- so, like I said, we we were really disgusted with the state of rap music, right? So, you know, we we liked aggressive rap music, right? And aggressive rap music wasn't really winning right then, you know. Like, so he's a soul assassin, and and um, that's the kind of music he liked. And we were listening to a lot of all kinds of shit, like Neil. You know, I love Neil Young. Like I said earlier, my mom was into singer songwriter stuff. Neil Young and Bob Dylan, Van Morrison. So I grew up with that around me, kind of. And um and so did he because he's he's around my age a little younger, and uh, I had we were in the studio we we're working on a rap record and we did the song Dollar Bill the one with him and X mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we did the um we did another version of Ends that was a rap version and then we did I think we did the song The Letter and we were making a rap record and I had a guitar I had a, a guitar and I play guitar a little little bit I play a couple ACDC songs. And I had an acoustic, like a hummingbird in my studio, and he picked it up. And he was like, yo, can I take this back to the pad? He was staying with me. I said, yeah, whatever. So he went to my house, and he, he, he uh, yo, this is the best. He always tells this story. I, I can't tell it as good as him. So back then, I was like, I was just, I was smashing everything in sight. <laughs> Dead ass. Okay. I was just, I was on one. So, so, you know, I was a young man. So I, I uh, had this chick in my house, in my room. And I literally heard him playing What It's Like. And I ran out my boxer shorts. And I was like, yo, you need to record that shit. And he was like, mid, 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 mid. No, no, mid, I, finished, I finished my, my business. <laughs> it's crazy, too, because I, I never messed with white girls back then. I always remember. She's like, I remember because when homegirl came over, you said, you, you said, yo, D, what do you? He was like, yo, D, what's up with that? I was like, sometimes you got to fuck with the home team. <laughs> so I always remember that. Because so, I... You know, if you know me, I mess with the, I mess with the, the Spanish mommies and the Asian girls. So, 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 um, That's so, perfect. so, man, I heard them play the record, and I was like, "We got to record that." He's like, "I don't know." And the next day, I was on him again. You got to play that. And that and was him actually playing the guitar on. He was that record. playing that song and singing it. And 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 I said, "Play me the song again next morning," because it stuck in my head. 
And he was like, he played again. I said, yo, we got to record that. He said, I'm not ready to do that. Once I do that, I can't ever do what I do now. I said, no, nah, you can do everything. He said, I don't want to do it. I said, yo, you should do it. He didn't want to do it. So I told him for two days straight, you got to do it. You got to do it. He, he, I said, bring the guitar back to the studio. So I was, I was being a producer. So he brought the guitar back. I said, yo, play that song. Play it for my engineer. He played it for John Gamble. Gamble was like, that shit is fire. And I said, yeah. What he didn't know was I had the Lafayette Afro rock drums hooked up already. I said, yo, play that. He played it. I hit the, hit the MP, bonk, drums. I had hit it on. He played it right to us. I said, that's it. That's the song. And he was like, really? I said, we're going to record that tomorrow. And record it the next day. First pass of his vocals is that version that made it to the record. Because I recorded on a 16-track tape machine, a Tascam that I had, an MS-16. Oh, wow. Right? A one-inch 16. So we could never find that machine again. So uh, I literally couldn't overdub when I took the tape to LA. We couldn't find the machine. So I took it and transferred it to a two inch, but we just used the vocals over there. And then we, we added the strings. Wow. That was that. So when the song hit and really. Dude, it hit six I months mean, after it came out. The What It's Like? What It's Like. It was, we thought we were going to, we thought we were over. We sold 3,800 copies the first week. The of the Whitey Ford album? Wow. So. And Steve Rifkin had given me a job. Steve Rifkin, love Steve Rifkin, always had a check for me, always had a consulting gig, always, 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 always check for me. He wanted me to work at Loud. I was going to be the, the first pres, uh, vice president of Loud, A&R department. I didn't do it. But um, he, he always wanted me to work with him. And I gave him the album before it came out. And he was like, this is the best thing you've ever done in your whole life. Um, wow. And when it sold 3,800 copies, the first week he called me up, he's like, I want to call Tom Silverman right now and try and buy the record. And I was like, he's not going to sell it to you. He's like, well, I'm going to see. And and I don't know if he ever made that call, but the record stumbled out the gate. He went on the road, and actually the first show he did in New York was at Coney Island High in St. Mark's Place, and he killed it. And I want to say John Perellis or John Leland. Other Some, times. Someone named John who wrote for The Times was there, and he gave it a stellar, stunning review. And keep going on and on and on the end in seattle started playing the record um which is like the k-rock of seattle indicator station and because of that k-rock started playing it and almost by accident that record became a hit song and it was six months i remember the week going into christmas i saw jeff fenster and he sold he said you sold seventy thousand albums this week dante and i was like really he's like yeah he's like that record's a huge record and i was like thanks jeff and that was that. Wow. That record was everywhere. Yeah, That's I saw it TRL and I was yeah, like, wow. Yeah, it was on TRL. It was on VH1. They used to play it, it like every- It bought me every... my house. That's how I bought my house. <laughs> wow. Yeah, from that and I got a big publishing deal and blah, blah, blah. So wow. Vengeance is sweet, saith the Ross. Saith the Ross. And I remember how, this is great. I saw Leor and Russell and Leor said, I am not fucking with you. <laughs> Still? <laughs> and, and, and Russell said- Leo, stop being a dick. Yo, I love you, D. Congratulations. <laughs> and Leo was, he was like, stop being a dick. And he was like, you're right. I'm happy for you. <laughs> I love everyone. Like, I know no one in this industry that doesn't have their version of what they think. Leo sounds Leo. like. Let's hear yours. <laughs> no, I mean, he, see. Oh, my are you scared? No, you scared? but my, my relationship. You sound scared, yo. No, it's different. He says. You you have to DJ for us again. Like my 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 Leor thing right. is, I always DJed for uh, his uh, I guess his then wife uh, Tori. Yeah, Tori. Well, her not his wife, his lady. They oh, never married. They never married. Okay, 
I still don't know if they're an item or not. That's how much I'm out of it. He gave it. me my job that I kind of have now at her house on a Saturday afternoon. Like I love Lior. Like that's my guy. I can't. I can't front. Yeah, I I I have good Lior stories. Like I have, I, I have a long. Very complicated relationship with them, but I love them. <laughs> <laughs> what, you didn't put, like, uh, hot peppers on the tuna fish sandwich or, yeah. like... Definitely, he threw many sandwiches at the back of my head. You stupid <laughs> fuck. I just want one <laughs> classic Def Jam story of, like... Oh, God. Just one. All right, so I worked there. I went out one night. Whew. I used to drink a lot. And I used to fight a lot. And Hank Shockley and me Edwards, he slapped me in the back of my head and I dropped him. And then his brother Keith ran over, and my man, this Albanian kid, snuffed him, and then flashed a gun. <laughs> Wait, and I went no to, I went to, I'm thinking of like, oh, I found this record in, and, nah, and then and it became Rebel Without a Pause. I went back to, I, Russell <clears throat> was there, and he was like, you stupid motherfucker. He said, that man makes hits for me. What the fuck do you do? I said, I'm sorry. He's like, yeah, all right. And on Monday, he called me to his house, and I thought I was going to fire it. And he was like, yo, you're lucky I love you because I should fire you. And I kept my job. And Griff called me up at work and was like, you know motherfuckers want to come see you. Who was the kid who, who was the Puerto Rican kid who snuffed Keith? And I was like, you don't want to know him. And that kid who did that later on went to jail for murder. He was uh, a wild Albanian kid I knew. Armando. Wow. wow. That's a Def Jam story. And then there's be, like... Be careful what you ask for. There's a million other ones. <laughs> One time me and Jam Master J, no, me and DMC, we were at the show at the World, Davey DMX and Public Enemy were the performers opening night and they had these paned windows and DMC used to wear a uh, ring, an old English ring. And he was punching panes of, the, of windows, breaking them. And I said, I could do that. And he said, do it. And I did it once. And he, I broke one. And he did it. He broke another one. I did another one. I cut my finger open. I had to get stitches. I still got the scar to my day. Right here on my finger. Wow. From punching windows with DMC. Who drove, me, who drove me to the hospital and left me there. At least he drove you there. This is he true. got you there. And I don't know, man. There's a million stories. Like, you know, that was, that was a wild time in my life. But it was super duper fun. And I, and I met after all. And I remember when I met Chuck D there, I had his demo before he came out. For months, and I didn't believe he was Chuck D because he wasn't big enough to be Chuck D. Oh yeah, yeah, this giant. Yeah, I thought he was like yeah. six foot nine figure yeah, exactly. superhero. I was like, wait, you're Chuck D? He's like, yeah. I was like, no, you're not. And he was Chuck D. That's crazy. All right, y'all. You know what season it is? Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, the blind test. All right, what we do is we play you songs and you give... Do I have to be blind? No, no, no. It's, it's like downbeat. Okay. We'll, ran, we'll randomly play you stuff that's significant to your career or, you know, just to get your taste on things. And uh, we'll like see what's up. like rate that record? Uh, no, nah, you don't have to rate it. Just talk about it. Okay. All right. This one should be very interesting. We'll see how much you know about your own history. <laughs> oh, that's, that's homeboy shit. I didn't even know that. That opening note is, is Dirty's Joint. Did you know at the time it was? I didn't. I didn't know it to just now. You just figured it out right now? <laughs> I just heard it right now. I was like, oh, that's Dirty's Joint. I didn't even know. I never knew that. <laughs> yeah, it's probably the greatest sample reveal I had ever. no idea. J-Rock. No I'll Rock give a shout out to J-Rock for... Yeah, like... Wow. I had no idea. Exactly. The thousands of times. And I'm a Stevie Wonder fanatic. Yeah, who knew? That's wild. I hope the lawyers don't call. Man, that's a beautiful, <laughs> it's a beautiful record. They're going to go catch Risen now. No, no. <laughs> um, wow. wow. Well, how, how would you... Did you negotiate with your artist that you have to remix everything on their records or you I just did it? I just kind of did it. I was like, I'm just going to remix this. And they'd be like, oh, that's cool. We'll put it out. And they didn't care? Nah, because I would do them like, I would just grab the acapellas. I'd just do them. I literally would sit there with the vocals and I would, oh, fuck, I would sample them line by line by line. How crazy is that? Yeah, because that was my question. How did you keep it in time? Because, I mean, it wasn't Pro Tools. You couldn't line it up. So. The time stretched a little, though. Oh, really? Yeah. Even, even with tape? With yeah. the, and I'd uh, make sure I, whatever I made was the same tempo. Ah, okay. Gotcha. Do you remember the first digital record you did? The first recording? Whitey, Whitey Ford Sings of Blues. That was the first Parts one you recorded? Oh, okay. Yeah. And then after that, everything. Meryl Caldado told me I had to get up on digital recording. And he that actually- was the Beasties engineer. Yeah, was, yeah. Uh, and when I started the second Everlast record, I had a little bit of knowledge, and I went and hung out with Mario, and he just taught me everything. And he was like, here's what we got to do. Here's what you got to do, kid. Because I had, I, had I had an ADAP moment on the first Whitey Ford record that fucking made me cry. 
Well, I hate lost, that. I lost background vocals, like eight tracks of background vocals I had to do again. Shit. Yeah, and I literally, like, was crying. All right. Uh, we're going to give you your second uh, blind test song, Sir Dante Ross, right here on Questlove. Mr. Supreme. Dante Ross. Yes, Mr. Dante Ross. I know what that is. That's MCA and Brazuti. That's Drum Machine. I remember when they made that. Yeah, that shit was crazy right there. Do you know anything about the history of the Latin Rascals or just... I do. I knew those guys. I, I you know, I'm, I know a lot about freestyle. MCA was ill. Yeah, this... Why this song never took off on Def Jam, I'll never know. Yeah, right? It's bugged out. Brzezuti. Jay who was, Burnett. Who was Bazooki? This guy, Jay Burnett. He was one of, one of the engineers of Chung King and, and the Beasties. Well, Mike and, Ad, Mike and MCA lived in his building on Christie Street, 69 Christie Street with the Chinese Ho House in the, in the first floor. <laughs> they, wait, so, they, uh, called, they called the song 69 Christie Street. What yeah. was the significance of it? There was Club 69. It was right there, 69 Christie Street. And his dad, this Chinese gangster who ran, was the landlord, he was like, Yo, boys never come to Club, Club 69. Come on, come and hang out. <laughs> And we would always we'd always make fun of him. He'd always do his voice. And it was this, this place. It was like basically there's a whole house on the first floor, the Chinese club, and and it was like um, uh, what do they call fucking uh, sweatshops. So they could make as much noise as they wanted in this fucked up loft that had rats that they lived in. And Brazuti lived in the building too. He got them, I think, the apartment. And and it was like they could practice there all the time. Brazuti lived upstairs, and he was friends with Steve. Et and Steve Ett, yeah. Steve Ett and and obviously Rick and everybody and he made the record with with MCA and Russ uh, Rick put it out and it never won anywhere but it was an ill record and uh, yeah he programmed it he did everything on it and MCA just wrote the raps and did the raps. Drum Steve is that the same Steve Ett that ended up doing uh, bigger and deafer? Was he? Yeah, the, they did everything that okay. Rick did back then. Yeah. It was Rick's guy. Steve Ett he died too. Rest in peace. Oh man. Steve yeah. Ett passed away. Long time ago. What? Yeah. Long long time ago. Steve Ett had. I mean, he's, you know, his engineering, man. Just think about how great the Beasties record sounds and how great Raisin Hell sounds. He was a beast. LL, he's a beast. He's a beast. Wow, I, I can't even imagine. Like, at, at your tenure at Def Jam, like, what was the one, what was the, your, your, your top moment of like, oh my God, I, gave I had I gave Red Alert shit. Rebel Without Applause. I gave him the test pressing. And he played it like... What was the reaction when you first heard yo, that he record? Played, it was in the Latin quarters. He played... I hadn't really heard it. He played it, and he was like, yo, this shit is ill. And he played it about 45 minutes later. And, wow. and the club jumped off crazy. And, and I was like, oh, my God, that's a hit record. I was like, that's a hit record. Well, another great memory at Def Jam is I tried to sign Boogie Down Productions. So I brought them in, and it was... Eric B. was there. Rakim. No, just Eric B., Russell and Lior and Scott and Scotty Morris was there. I think D was there, but he never remembers this. And Karis one was like, they were like, yo, we don't want to be on Def Jam. Why? Karis was like, yo, I'm deaf. I don't need the Def Jam. I already got that. Like he didn't wow. want to fuck what? with Because he didn't trust them. He's, he just was paranoid. So he didn't trust them and we didn't get them. And, and if you notice, he took shots. He was always taking shots at Run he DMC. He took shots at Run DMC. He took some shots, and I think that has something to do with it too. Yeah. You know, he didn't want to fuck with them, and and he was, you know, he was salty with the Juice Crew. He was trying to just 
you know, he was ready to go out. He was ready to whatever at any time. But in his head, he thought it was better to be on B-Boy Records well, than... no. So here's what happened. They, they knew that they could get out of the B-Boy Records contract that had been voided. So they were a free agent, kind of. And, and then um, Scott got killed. And then we had another meeting with Karis One. And he said, I'm not really trying to sign here, but you should sign my man D-Nice. And we didn't sign D-Nice. Wow. And Karis One signed the job. And I remember there was a lot of confusion because George Hinojosa was saying he managed him and he didn't manage him. And I think there was a little problem over that. Before I do the last record, are there any other near misses that you could have signed but oh, you didn't? so many. Um, DOS Effects, I didn't sign it. I had it. The first uh, album, Dead Series? The biggest miss I ever had was Tribe Called Quest. I left my job at Tommy Boy with the intent of signing Tribe Called Quest and Brand Nubians and the DOC at Electra Records. And I lost two out of three of them. The DOC? DOC. You had a relationship with Dre to do that? Or? Jerry Heller was in my office with Dr. Dre and Michelle A. and Easy, and they, they wanted to bring him there because they had a song called Bridget that they wouldn't put out. If you've ever heard it, it's it's out there on the net. It's a filthy record. It's amazing. Bridget was a dumb <laughs> hoe. Bridget was a dumb hoe. Bridget. I think the I think she fucked the midget. Bridget. It was wild. It's a wild record. So, and it's all about them running the train on her. Right, end up her. <laughs> right. And, and like, yeah. how do you explain this to Tommy Silverman? So like. Tom didn't want to spend the money because we had it was a hundred seventy five thousand dollar deal. He didn't want to spend it. I went over to work at Electra. I, I tried to get the deal, but and they thought they could get out of the East West deal. My lawyer Gary Casson said we can't compete against one of the labels in Warner Music Group. We can't go and do this. And my boss told me Jerry Heller, don't trust that guy. I remember him told me that he's like he's not trustworthy. Wow. And and when I read Jerry's book, he told a story and omitted me from the story and told a bullshit version of it. But that's okay because Jerry Heller's Jerry Heller. Right. And and I, I have no no you know bad feelings for him. But but he didn't tell the truth. And and um I didn't sign that in tribe. I had three hundred thousand dollars, which was a gang of loot on the table back then. It was. And I, yeah. I think I went up to three seventy five and they signed a the jive and they gave up after publishing. Oh, and they didn't know the game back then. And Chris Lighty, for years, I'd be like, you could have kept your publisher. <sighs> and that should have been my group. And uh, yikes, I have a long, intricate history with, with those guys. And, and uh, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it was like and me and Chris, you know, remained very close friends throughout all of that. And, and those were bands that I lost. There's some others along the way. Um, I lost stuff recently even that did well and... You know, there's a bunch of stuff I've lost, but those are ones that really stick out. And and Das Effects, honestly, I didn't believe in it. I was like, I don't believe in it. I was like, you thought it was novelty? Thought it was novelty. I lost Souls of Mischief. I signed Dell, and I should have signed Souls, and I didn't sign Souls because Stretch Armstrong and, and Daddy Reef worked at Big Beat, and those are my sons. And I was like, they were like, we want to sign Souls. I was like, get that, get that. Kind of how Maddie gave me dirty, and um and Sophia stepped in and got it. Yeah, but that was supposed to be on Big Beat. And, and, oh, um, Souls and was supposed to be on Big B? Yeah, and I should have wow. signed them. I didn't sign them. And they had, they had 93, too, on the demo and all that. All of that. So Can't were you sign. behind Artifacts? Were you on, on nah. Big B? That wasn't you. Okay. Nah, that was Reef did that. You know, I didn't do that. Um, What else did I miss? Those are, those are noticeable misses. I tried to swing third base to, to Tommy Boy, and, and Tommy Boy didn't like them. They didn't want to sign them. Um, I helped make third base a group. That's was Sam Sever part of, like, your stimulated dummies click? No, or? no, but he was... He was my man and shit. He was my boy and he showed me how to use some equipment and he borrowed a few records here and there and we he put me up on the Ultimate Breaks and Beats and he kicked some knowledge my way. He was definitely a, a, younger than me but like my mentor on some levels. What would you use? Like a 1200? 1200, 1200 or? and then we went to the MPs. 
an SB twelve hundred drum machine? Yeah, that's the one. You know, that's the that's the box. I mean, you know who the master of the of the, of the SP twelve was? Wait, what are y'all laughing at? I, I just got a big up as someone who no one talks about. Paul C. He was the master of the SP twelve. Did you know Paul C? I knew him well. He's my man. That's probably how I know Large. And um, the other day, Large gave me the biggest compliment. He said, yo, when it comes to, like, beat knowledge, I always held you up there with Paul C. And I'm always like, damn, because he's the king of kings. He showed me. He's the one who told me, buy every get-out-my-life woman. He showed me skull snaps. <clears throat> took me shopping. Um, he was that guy. He was he was a, a amazing producer. And he, he would have he got paid. I mean, he did a lot of records you don't know he did. You know, including stuff for Eric B. and Rakim. Give the drummer something for Ultramagnetic. Oh, I know. Steezo. Um, oh wow! It's my, turn. Oh, it's my turn. He did. It's my turn. He did. Let the rhythm hit him for Eric he, B. And Rakim, he did right? Let the rhythm hit yeah. him. He did. Um. Um. I'm, I'm for, oh, he did. Do the James. The he did. Do the James. Do, do the, wow. That was his kick. That's him. <laughs> and they they killed the peach the best to me. Oh my that's god! Yes, that's he did the... all those records and he mixed them in a room that was about this big. He was a nasty, nasty, nasty motherfucker. So was he primarily an engineer? Or engineer primarily? and a producer and a digger. He was a serious digger. For real, real, real digger. I heard, he the legend, I heard the legend of Paul C. Nin, 1990, right? Oh. I think so, 89. He, he did Organized Confusion's demo, and they're called Simply Too Positive, STP. And I wanted to sign him, and he had Bra looped up. He had Bra, and he had the, the Eddie Harris joint, too. The the one that, yeah. um, that Brand Nubian used. Wow. So was, he was nasty, and, and ask Paul about him if you ever get Large Pro up here. So, so whenever I when I when I think about Large, I always think about Paul C too. So you know, Paul C, he was a legend, man. He he got taken out before his time. Well, the last uh, record, I'm I'm just, of course, he signed Lons, but it's something about this album that just big large. Oh, this yeah. big, <laughs> big large. I miss mean, this Buster, Buster goes solo because of this. <laughs> yes. This man Backspin did this. Really? Backspin was ill. I don't know what happened. He was bugged out. Feminine fat. Feminine fat. Feminine fat. Yeah, to me, Feminine Fat should have been a single and I always Let wanted to know. Let me hear those drums for a minute. That's Bill Cosby? No, Booker Team MGs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sing a simple song joint. No. The, uh, da, 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 da. Come on, uh, I know what you mean. I wouldn't have bad luck if it wasn't for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the Silver album. Yes, it's on there. That's a... I always that's the question I play this to ask you why was this not a single because the rest of the band wouldn't go for it wow. that's bus and I always thought like when I heard that bus I was like damn he got that yard man shit he's ill it was like a real <laughs> that sounded like a real Brooklyn record to me I can't even explain why just has that yard man feel bus was so he was so incredible yo he was just so charismatic from day one to this to this day I still spend Feminine Fet by Leaders of the New that's School it. on I haven't my heard set. that record in at least 10 years that's an ill one it's it's incredible. I bought it. Yeah, I was twelve Where's when it came out. Where's the vibe chemist God. backspin at? He was ill. He did, he had a couple of joints on that album. I don't think he ever did. Anything so he produced else. this. Yeah, and that was Buster's man from Brooklyn. What else did he do? 
He did a couple of songs on that album. I, I have to see the album, man. My, my memory's a little hazy. But he didn't have any other productions afterwards? Not that I'm aware of. M- maybe something here or there, but nothing nothing significant. Okay, so there's so much that we have not touched on. We didn't even get on to Santana. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is your touch- only Grammy the Santana record? I only got one. Sorry, bro. <laughs> can, I, can I still hang? Of course you can, bro. Okay, I just want to make sure. Yeah, yeah, I got that. I did a... Uh, Everlast, that was the first song we did after he, because he had a heart attack after he did Whitey Ford Sings the Blues, which I forgot to mention. He was born with congenital heart disorder and his Coumadin was misprescribed and he had a heart attack. He almost died. I mixed the album without him. He was in the hospital recuperating and then he, he got better, went on tour and the, I got a call from Pete Gambarg and he was like, do you guys have a song for Santana? And I said, yeah, sure. And we didn't. And, <laughs> and Everlast was in town, coincidentally, doing Good Morning America and he was like, yo, let's track the song. And I took a beat that was from an old casual song that had a Latin feel to it with the bongo in it. And I was like, yo, I think these drums are rock. He's like, those are perfect. And we used those drums and he he recorded it. And then I tr- I basically ripped off the Aaliyah drum break, and one in a million. And I used that in a break. <laughs> and that was the song. And I gave Pete the demo like 36 hours later. And he was like, when can you go do it? And I was like, when can you write a check? And he said, how much do you need? And I, and I asked him for the biggest check I'd ever asked anyone for in my whole life to produce a record. And he was like, no problem. And I went and did the record. Wow. And I worked with Santana two times after that. And uh, it was cool. I worked with him at Anthony Hamilton. That was that was badass because I wrote the lyrics on that song too. And I never really write lyrics. So, so yeah, Carlos Santana, he's ill. He's the coolest. And Anthony Hamilton's the coolest too. So Those are the days. Was, was hot. Wow. Not, you know, I don't produce records anymore, but but I always think the Santana record is like the last significant record I produced, the one with Anthony Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And to me, that that's, you know. Which album was this? Which Santana album was on, this? It was on All That I Am. Okay. That was like, I think that was the last one needed on Jay. And, and when I did the song, they made me, Josh Stone did the original vocal, and I had to change the whole register of the song for her. And it didn't rock right, and she didn't sing it right. And I took it to Clive, and he handed me the demo back. and was like, go put the, the guy on it. That doesn't work. And uh, I went and recut the entire record again in the original register with the band. And then Anthony uh, came and sang it. And and what's crazy is I played keyboards on it. And I don't really play keyboards all that well. But I just, you know, used, I chopped my shit up. I played the Wurlitzer on it. And they had Serbin mix it. And he he bricked the mix. Wow. Serbin? Serbin. He didn't have, because he didn't know how the record's supposed to sound. It's supposed to sound like a Donny Hathaway Serbin record. Gne- yeah, from, from Neptune. So, yeah. so I went Serbin. out to, to Cali and I sat with him and he said, what do I do? I said, how much do I pay you? And he told me, I said, maybe you should do it yourself. <laughs> and then I was like, no, nah, man, I'm fucking with you. I, I sat down and I fixed it around and I said, that's the record. And so initially you sent it to Serbin Blind to they did. handle it? I didn't it. do that. They did that. That's not okay. Good. I, I want, about to say Serban. I want a Bob Powers a mixer, keep it on it. Or Jamie Staub. They just wasn't trying to hear that. Serban is the first and probably the with the exception of Jimmy Douglas, the only cat that I've ever just Jimmy Douglas is nice. Sent a mix to and it's like, yeah, we know what we do. I know what you want, man. I mean, he just didn't know. You know, I wanted it to sound like a Donny Hathaway record. I wanted it to sound I didn't want it to sound. He thought it was all about the drums and it wasn't. Yeah, well, J- Jimmy Douglas is awesome for that. Yeah, he's bad. Like he just I mean, Jimmy you give Douglas him a, a reference. He's like, "Yeah, I did that back in '74." Yeah, with right. Black he Heat. probably did. He did. Wow. He did. Slave. And <laughs> Black Heat. Slave. Foreigner. Barry White. Like I mean, all that stuff. He's. He's. And he did Timberland. He's the G. Yeah. He um, is. Yeah. I mean, so. So, so after. I mean, I you did. did, Santana, you I got did the stuff Grammy. after. Yeah, I did. I did the second ever last record. Um, I did a. You know, 
I did all these remixes for every rock rap band in the world. I made a lot of money doing that. Like I did like six corn remixes and Incubus wow. and fucking all that bullshit. Um, and I was just polishing more and more turds. I got to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, you know, it was like it was it wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. And uh, I got this big publishing deal, and I I was like, I'm gonna be a songwriter. There's one problem with me being a songwriter. I can't really play an instrument that well, and I don't know how to write lyrics. So so being a songwriter is probably pretty hard for me. Um, but but I got a couple songs off, and and uh, you know I did this I did these last two records. I can name what they are, but they were not artistically fulfilling. And then I started working with Travis Barker, and I helped him out make his solo record. Mm -hmm. And I was living in L.A. and. Uh, my dad passed, and Lior called me up. He knew how close to me and my dad were, and he offered me a job at Warner Brothers. And I went and I, I took a job working at Warner Brothers in New York. I moved back. I was living in L.A. And um, I did a third Everlast record, too, that tanked. Um, and Lior Which was the me, third one? Which, which was, uh, what was the third one called? Uh, I had White Trash Beautiful. White Trash, yeah. But yeah so nah. I did it, and Lior, Lior gave him the deal, and then Lior quit, like, a month, eight weeks before the record came out, and I got stuck with L.A. Reid trying to explain what the record was about. And that, Oy. You, you, you know, you can tell how that works. <laughs> you know, it is what it is. Um, so Leo, I guess, Oy. felt he owed me one, and he he, he asked me if I wanted an A&R job. And I was like, yeah, you know, there's a couple of things in my life I've been good at, and that's one of them. So uh, I took the job in New York, and I worked there for a couple of years. And I got to tell you, it was very frustrating for the first few years. I found this guy named Macklemore, and, and Todd Moskowitz told me he sucked. And uh, and I told Lior I was going to quit. Whatever and, happened to that kid? Yeah, right. So I told <laughs> right. I told Lior I was going to quit. Todd wouldn't let me sign anything. He said, take it to ADA, see if Kenny wants to do it. And Kenny Wigley, I connected him and Zach Quillen. He ended up doing the deal. The record came out, and I went to work at ADA and became vice president of ADA. And I still work there now. Um, you know, so so it all worked out in the end. Amazing. And, uh, you know, I mean, I can't necessarily say I, I was like, I'm recognized as Macklemore's A&R because the way we do records at AD is you, we kind of take finished records. It's a distribution company with label services. But uh, since then, I signed um, I signed Little Dicky, you know, Save That Money is my record. Oh, really? And, yeah, and that's like a platinum single. And, and I signed um, Made in Tokyo, who, who have the Uber everywhere, which just went platinum too. So I had a little, you know, a nice little run in downtown. Though the record didn't sell, the single sold. And so it's been a good little, you know, 12 months over there for me. I'm about to be senior vice president and blah, 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 all that bullshit, all the bells and whistles. But it's ironic that 25 years later, I'm kind of back where I started, you know, doing A&R in the Warner Music Group again and, and, and having a very good run right now. Um, but the disparity in the music I work on is 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 really mind boggling. Like my how do you? I mean, my, my it, good friend Pete said you used to do all dirty bastard. It's okay. You have enough credibility. You can do whatever you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I had this record, this Jordan Belafort record, man. I mean, that's a gold record. But like, you guys would punch me if you heard the record. So, you know, you, you'd be like, "Yo, I'm, I gave you crab tonight." Like, we give <laughs> no. I'm, but here's the th here's the thing, though. The thing is, is that now that you're older and wiser. 100%. And you know that the tastes of your youth are not exactly in line 100%. with what is out today. Like, 100%. how do you trust yourself when you know, how do you know this is going to work? I mean, versus, there's a, there's a couple I really ways. love this. There's like, analytics, right? That that plays into it. I, I do heavy analytics. I, I help run the, the research department um, for, for Atlantic because I also work at Atlantic. Mm -hmm. So I am one of the heads of that. Um, so research driven. And then 
like in the case of Macklemore, I just really believed in what he was. Like I, I saw it live and I was like, oh, this, this I connect to. Um, so however you feel about him, he's exceptional at what he does, right? And I recognize his exceptionalness. I thought he was, he was great at what he does. And we talk about Little Dickie, so same thing. I thought he was great at what he did. Mm-hmm. Like he's really good at what he does, like him or not. So, so I guess I, I do my job with less sentiment, right, with, with less of my heart and more of my brains. And, and I also am keyed into to knowing it's a singles market, it's a streaming world, your album may never sell. And, and the end result of that, twofold. One, I become much smarter at my job, much less emotionally connected and attached, which allows me to leave my, my job at my desk and enjoy my life. Live more, a life, yeah. Right? And, and I reap the benefits financially. But two, I feel like me and, and, and lots of other people who do what I do for a living, we have killed the art form of the classic great rap record album. The rap album is no longer important due to streaming, and we have to, we have to if we want to survive in the business, accept that fact. And I've accepted that fact begrudgingly, but I accept that fact. And that is what it is right now. And, you know, when I, when I, you know, I, I do a lean and mean, man, I don't, uh, much like my early days, I don't spend a lot of money picking these records up. I allow people to own themselves. Um, you own your masters and a large, a large royalty. It's a whole different way of doing business. Um, but, but I think for me, exciting because I feel like I'm, I'm contributing to the independent side of the culture. And for me, that's exciting. And, and I balance it out by going to play records with Just Blaze and, <laughs> and Large Pro and digging and, and, you know, doing all the other things I like. So, you know, kind of my life has a lot of balance to it. Do you ever pray that it will come full circle again? I and do. there will be a generation I, I believe, that, I, I believe that wants that, to dig again. And that, that, I don't know if that will ever happen because of finances, right? Clearing records costs too much money. But well, I do believe there are great rappers in the world. Jay Alec, for one, is a great rapper. Chance the Rapper's phenomenal. I, there's lots of Who's young... Who's Jay Alec? Jay Alec. Just playing, yeah. just playing. Yeah, 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 where is that guy? Um, <laughs> but, you know, and, and I even like Future. It's a different thing, but once again, for what he does, he's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's polarizing artists like a little Yachty who I have to respect because he's polarizing, right? But, but there are people who still really can rap. Um, you know, I, I believe YG makes really good music. Uh, Chance the Rapper, Vic Mensa, you know, there's lots of guys out there who still spit and, and still rap really great. And then there's lots of guys who, who make good music. Maybe they're not the greatest rappers mm-hmm. um, because my bar is set with Rakim, right? Mm-hmm. So, so my bar is here, but that's okay because I look at music in chambers. Everything has their own chamber. So I can't expect the trap rap dude of the day to, to be rap rock like him. Rock him yeah. If I expected that, I'll always be miserable. I'll be the cranky old man in my size 38 jeans beefing with the fitted hat, and that's not me. You know, <laughs> boss I, Bill. I, right I, now I'm pointing to Boss <laughs> Bill. You know, I have to be... I own that. <laughs> I have to be... Um, I have to be abreast of what, what's popping right now. And, you know, I mean, this, that's how I am culturally, too. I never wanted... See, because when I was young, the old bitter dude, I didn't like that dude. So I don't want to be that old bitter dude. That no one corny. wants to be the old bitter dude. Yeah, no dude. one wants to be MC Raw. You know, that dude's corny. But so, we're that bitter t- now. <laughs> I mean, I'm not I'm not bitter, man. And I find things I love. And, and you know, I'm trying to do a couple things right now I believe in. And, and whether it gets done or not, who knows? But but that said, you know, the problems with doing A&R now is no secrets. Everybody knows everything. So everything goes zero to 60 right away. Right? Right, right away. Even from when, I, when, when we found Macklemore to now, things have changed dramatically. So th- wow. the kind of artist that I work with wants to remain independent. He doesn't necessarily want to be part of a big machine because we have seen so many guys 
get signed to that big label, and the brakes come on, and that's that. And that's been since forever, but we really see it now, right? And I can name 10 guys who had a big buzz, and they got signed to that major. And, it was over, yeah. There came the break. You know, the other thing, the other side of it is, for me to bring something in the building that's at zero and think I'm going to go zero to 60 with it, it's probably not going to happen. He wow. has that, that artist has to be. You got to build it. You got to be able to do it himself. And, and we all can do it because right there, Quest got his laptop. That's, that's your whole world right there. That's, that's your record company. That's your recording studio. That's your marketing tool. That's your vice president of marketing. That's your promo team. That's everything. Everything. Right. And, and, you know, man, just get it on iTunes. It can end up in the streaming world and, and you can win. And we're, I mean, look at Chance, man. He said, fuck you to everybody. Most punk rock shit ever. I tried to sign him when he put out 10 Day. I flew to Chicago. He was like, nah. Right? So, and he told me I wasn't the first one there. Wow. And was he was that shrewd enough to say no? He said no to Sylvia Rome before he said no to me. Somebody's <laughs> backing that dude, though. Who's backing his, his that His manager dude? has a lot of money, but he makes a lot of money. He's a touring act. Look, man, it's a hard ticket world right now. If you're out there touring. That's amazing. And that... I can name five guys, and I'm not giving away no secrets, who are touring acts who don't need a record deal. The Suicide Boys don't need a record deal. Um, Puya don't need a record deal. I mean, little young Duff don't need a record deal. Mm-hmm. These dudes don't need record deals. They are on the road, making money, selling merch, doing whatever they do, and and they're not selling thousands, hundreds of thousands of records. But let's be real: the new gold record's a hundred thousand. The new gold album is a hundred thousand. Your single might sell a million. I caught a couple this year, but my albums are not selling like that. Nobody's are. Mm-hmm. It's a different game. But you know what? I'm shrewd enough, and I've always been involved in technology enough because I was a producer like and I shifted with time that that I see where it goes and where it's going and hopefully I can continue to do that if I don't I don't got a job right and I don't know how to do that many other things I pray for the practice of acceptance I have like a serious meditation practice and all this other tree hugger bullshit I do and um that's That's important that's very important that is important every day I gotta I gotta wake up in the morning I have to make you know Conscious contact with my higher power. That's did that's Russell where I my day. get on you about that? Not at all. Uh, he no. got on me about that about nah, meditating. And I mean, stuff I meditate and, and pray. I, I've uh, after my father died, I just developed a much deeper um, connection to my higher power. So I had to deal with a lot. So you know, Same. you get closer to God when things happen. Ditto. Right. So so also you know, I live a 100 percent sober life for a long time now, and and you know, I don't smoke or drink anymore, and you know, I, I'm I'm still bad with ladies. That's that's. <laughs> <laughs> progress not perfection but um you You're know man there. it's like i'm i'm happy where i am you know it's like I, i'm blessed to still have a job and still have uh you know a, a source of income doing what i love and and i still have all these great relationships with with people i worked with for my whole life and you know it's damn i talked to pasta news today you know it's like I spoke to mugs over the weekend like i have these friends who i'm gonna it's like i always say we didn't go to college we went to hip-hop you know, mm. that's and, a quote for your ass right there. You know, that's what we did. And, and this was our hip hop, whether, you know, was hanging out with, with Ali Shaheed recently or whoever. It's like we we are part of this thing that's so much bigger than us. And I'm just I always want to be Steve Cropper or, or Jerry Wexler. And I'm not going to say I'm those guys, but but I have a, a little Bruh. a little piece of the history of, of what this is about and continue to write my history. And for me, that's enough. That's you signed ODB. <laughs> yeah. And got a completed record <laughs> out you of ODB. You completed an ODB record. I got a lot I of good stories. I think that puts you up there, bruh. Bruh, well, you know, I can go on forever. Thank you for fulfilling Thank you for having me my here. nerd fantasy on just the whole renaissance era of hip-hop. Uh, Dante Ross, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Yes, Thank you, guys. That, that was amazing.
Gentlemen, we've learned a lot about Renaissance hip hop. Uh, take a little, uh, any uh, final thoughts? Man, I'm just, man, I'm just, so, it's just so amazing how, like, I wonder if there's a correlation between, you know, hearing him talk about how the records were cheap, how cheap the records were, you know, for a record, you know, like a Daylight to get made for like 90000 or whatever. For something so groundbreaking to be made for so cheap and you look at what a, what rap budgets became mm-hmm. later on, you know, is I think there's something to be said, you know, doing, sometimes you can do more with less. I think that forces you to be, in some ways that forces you to be a lot more creative because you really... You got to make every everything count, every dollar, every minute in the studio, you every every reel, like everything. You know what I'm saying? So you can't really fuck around. And they always I, say that like necessity is the mother of invention. So you know if you don't have the money to pay for, you know whatever whatever studio equipment you need, and you can come up with something. Yeah, you got to make it. Yeah, yeah. you got to figure it out. It's amazing. Yeah, I got to say that uh, my rule number one is I hate those comfort studios. I mean, a lot of them are sh- shutting down now. Mm-hmm. But, like, one of the biggest things about, like, Roots albums was the fact that when we tracked the music, when I did, like, the music and the stuff, um, I wanted it in the most uncomfortable, unsavory, non... I mean, we always joke, like, fruit basket situation and non-fruit basket situation. Like, Tariq needs to be comfortable in a, you know, sunshine and fruit baskets and all that stuff and free pastries that that sort of thing <laughs> oh man <laughs> no i mean he he gotta be in his zone, and you know he needs fresh pastries and fruit baskets but like you know i wanted the opposite like even now when i make roots records i record them in our dressing room at 30 rock uh which is essentially our you know it's like a, a closet um i just have this 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 fear of of going soft if I'm in a comfortable environment. So maybe it's a good thing that, you know, keep, what would the LONS record sound like uh, with a $700,000 budget? budget. But yeah, I mean, who would know if, if they were given the righteous budget? But then it, it kind of also makes me mad that that even labels didn't see the art that they had on their hands to, you know, give it justice. I mean... Yeah, I think that was the selling point, kind of, a lot of hip-hop. I mean, you talk to, you know, a lot of the OGs in the game, they all say that, like, the selling point of hip-hop, it wasn't, I don't think the labels really understood the music. It was just it could be produced for so cheap. The profit margin on it was so high. So it was like, okay, you mean we ain't got to bring a drummer, a bassist, a guitarist, and we just need just you and your records? Okay, cool, we'll sign it. So hip-hop is truly the, the new blues. Oh, my God. The new blues and labels are just Alan Lomax is walking around with, <laughs> with field recordings <laughs> and shit. Young Thug. <laughs> on, live, on location. In his natural environment. In his natural environment. Oh. We're live here at the Trap House with Sir Gucci of Maine. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about <laughs> so, Mr. Uh, LaFleur himself. Un- unpaid build, Steve. Uh, mm. You know, you guys are, are intricate. Uh, vital parts of of the show. Um, did you learn anything special? Dante Ross is some Jedi Yoda hip hop god. Yes, I learned that. I was also impressed by the someone who has a career in music and is somewhere in the middle of it at this point to have that kind of longevity and continue to do groundbreaking shit at each turn is really uh, unbelievable. And I don't, you know, 
something to aspire to, I suppose. Yeah, I think we all want to be Dante Ross. When we grow up, we want to be Dante Ross. No. I want to be Dante Ross when I grow up. Be like, yeah, this is our new single. It's called Troy. That's right. Acronym, son. Troy. So, you know, Boss Bill, any any final thoughts? Um. Really, the the whole black bastard situation kind of stuck in my head. Like, just kind of, you know, hearing names of people who are kind of voted it down kind of made me angry. It didn't, but it It made perfect sense, but it still incensed me because of the fact that you know, just learning that they didn't even bother listening to the album or to get the get the rationale behind the artwork. You know, it's, I cannot wait to get on Facebook. Yo, half lock about. In their defense, in the label's defense, and I'm being granted, this is probably the only time I will ever come to defense with fucking label. <laughs> I'm like, who are you? <laughs> Let me be clear. In their defense, you know, they that's this was post cop killer, right? Right. You know no, what I, mean? I, I so understand it, but like they wasn't. I mean, you get a letter from and the it government. was you really it, get a letter it, from the government, and the it other was day. Warner too. So yeah, yeah, it's same mean, shit. Yeah. It's like okay, I can't fuck me. I got a letter from the government for real. Gun shy. I get it. I get it. I get it. Well, but I mean, if it hadn't happened, then you know, we probably would have never had Mad Villain and yep. And MM Food. MM Food. And Operation like Doomsday. Yep. Yeah, so I guess it all worked out for the best. Yeah, I guess I guess it did work out for the best. Um, on behalf mm-hmm. of Fontickle Coleman, Sugar Steve, <laughs> Unpaid Bill, yeah. and Boss Bill, uh, this is Quest Love Supreme. Thank you, and I'll talk to y'all later. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life. Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.